I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth, in all the confusion, I sort of lost track myself. What you gotta ask yourself is this. Do I feel lucky? Well, do ya, punk? That's right, Lieutenant. You saw to that. I've got nothing personal against you, Callahan. But we can't have the public crying police brutality every time you go out on the street. Well, you just might need me on a job like this. Whoever did this was very good at it. You'd sure be the one to know, Harry. Well, I just work for the city, Briggs. So do I. Longer than you. And I never had to take my gun out of its holster once. I'm proud of that. Good man, Lieutenant. Good man always knows his limitations. What I can't understand is why you, of all people... A hundred years ago in this city, people did the same thing. This to justify the vigilantes. We're no different. Anyone who threatens the security of the people will be executed. Evil for evil, Harry. Retribution. That's just fine. How does murder fit in? You know, when police start becoming their own executioners... Where's it gonna end, huh, Briggs? Pretty soon you start executing people for jaywalking and executing people for traffic violation. Then you end up executing your neighbor because his dog pisses on your lawn. There isn't one man we've killed who didn't deserve what was coming to him. Yes, there is. Charlie McCoy. Well, what would you have done? I'd have upheld the law. What the hell do you know about the law? You're a great cop, Harry. You had a chance to join the team, but you'd rather stick with the system. Briggs, I hate the goddamn system. But until someone comes along with some changes that make sense, I'll stick with it. You're about to become extinct. Hello, and welcome to Max and Jason Watching Movie. I'm Max. And I'm Jason. And this week we'll be continu- continuing our coverage of the Dirty Harry series with the second installment coming to us all the way back from 1973. That film is Magnum Force, directed by Ted Post, written writers accredited as Harry Julian Fink, Rita M. Fink, and John Milius, starring... Clint Eastwood as Harry Callahan. Strangely, on I am not on IMDb, but rather on Amazon, it's Harry Callbetter is the is the character who he's billed as. I don't know why nobody's corrected this, but Harry Callbetter is the San Francisco cop. But as we all know, it's Harry Callahan. Hal Holbrook plays Lieutenant B- Briggs. Mitchell Ryan as McCoy. David Soul as Davis. Tim Matheson, a very young-looking Tim Matheson, as Sweet. Kip Niven, who never did another thing in his entire life, is. 
as Astrachan, Robert Urich as Grimes, Felton Perry, who's a really kind of wonderful character actor whose face you will immediately recognize, is Early Smith, Maurice Argent as Nate Weinstein, Margaret Avery as Prostitute. I think I think that that's not a politically correct term anymore. I think sex worker is the term we would use now. Richard Devon as Rika, Tony Giorgio as Palancio, Jack Coslin as Walter, and Bob March as Easterbrook. I don't really think any of these other people really make that much of a difference. Folks, this is the second installment of the Dirty Harry series. I think the script, Jason, you can correct me if I'm wrong, this is much more faithful to the Milius script that was originally proposed for the first film. Yeah, um, actually a lot of the, um, well, we have to back up there because actually you mentioned Harry Julian Fink and R.M. Fink. The original screenplay for Dirty Harry actually ended up being the film Dirty Harry because when Clint Eastwood and Don Siegel showed up, they wanted to go back to the original script written by them. But the storyline of this movie was one of the storylines that was proposed for for one of the many rewrites that Warner Brothers was asking for. And Clint Eastwood remembered some of those storylines. And even though he rejected them for the first film, he thought they would be a good idea to bring back for this film, specifically because this film is about uh, vigilante cops, because Eastwood thought that that would... Eastwood wanted to show that Harry Callahan does have a line that he yes. cross. He wanted so he wanted to bring that back, and Milius took that as the primary screenwriter and wrote the first draft of what turned out to be the basic plot of the film. Now, I... I, I, I think I understand that Eastwood took this script to Don Siegel. He wanted to work with Don Siegel again for, for this installment. Uh, so did so did Milius. So okay. Did, yeah. And Don Siegel decided it was time to move on to greener pastures, I guess. He didn't want to revisit this character. So he didn't he didn't return. Anything you want to say? Any any production notes you have here? Because I don't really have a lot of production stuff. Well, I mean, that's the main thing. This film is the, the Malpaso company, which is Eastwood's company, is in charge of this film. So Eastwood, uh, if not a producer on record, had a lot of authority in the making of this movie, as he did in the previous one. I mean, yeah. but I mean, Don Siegel was his mentor. So Siegel was kind of like the, you know, the, the primary artist of the first film. Probably Eastwood pulled a little more weight in this movie because uh, whereas he would have deferred to Siegel, Ted Post was, and, and Eastwood had worked with uh, Ted Post before. Okay. Ted Post had directed uh, Hang Em High, um, so he had worked with Eastwood before, but Ted Post was primarily a, a television director, and at this point, Eastwood had his own film company, and so he tended to, uh, the story goes, he tended to argue with Post about a lot of his directorial decisions, and that's something that did not happen in the first film, uh, as, you know, he deferred to Don Siegel for everything. Yeah, this film certainly seems to and i don't think we have to include dirty harry and a couple of other films that eastwood does during this time certainly is the beginning of eastwood becoming a major player as a producer and eventually a director in hollywood this is his he's definitely finding his rhythm as a maker at every level of the process with this film Very much so. um, he has he has directed his first film by this point um so you know he he has made films 
um, at this point. So he has he, he he's already developing an idea about how films should be shot, you know, how to appeal to an audience. And so apparently he did not get along with Ted Post uh, making this movie, even though he had worked with him before. This is not a guy he didn't know. Um, so, so there was a lot of conflict. And apparently Ted Post felt that a lot of the um, uh, a lot of Eastwood's criticism of him was kind of seminal in him not being able to stay in making feature films. Okay, okay. okay. I need to pause here, audience, uh, because I wanted, I wanted to take note that the person who, one of the people who joined us on this journey, Anya, isn't with us here on this episode. And I kind of want to touch base on that. Anya couldn't join us on this episode because she's been very busy prepping for her first gallery show. And she, oh. she just put up a bunch of paintings. She just sold a bunch of paintings. And uh, so she couldn't join us on this episode. And I kind of want to congratulate her. Uh, I know some people, uh, you know, you guys like to hear about what's going on with the hosts. And, and a lot of you are probably fans of the great Anya. She had a great show this weekend and she just has not been able to keep up to date necessarily on the show's Instagram page or with the movies that we're going <laughs> to, we're doing right now. So she'll probably join us on the next installment. And we're hoping that she'll have the time to do a Tuesday short to kind of give her verdict on Dirty Harry and on Magnum Force. And But anyway, I wanted to let you guys know that she'll be back, uh, but she's been kind of busy lately. And so congratulations to Anya. Indeed. That's good to know. Yes. And so anyway, back to the back to the content at hand. Friction between Post and Eastwood. Yeah, that apparently there were lots of shots that Post wanted to do that Eastwood nixed. And, you know, being that his production company was kind of behind the film, uh, Post couldn't really argue with him. So there, there were issues about that, So which would not have happened in the first film. But it also has to be said that there were, that Ted Post had a, did have a certain amount of input into the final script, and John Milius was not happy with Ted Post either. Okay. John Milius wanted Don Siegel to direct, and to, um, I don't want to say to this day, um, I mean, John Milius is still alive, but John Milius said that that Siegel would have had better instincts because it was actually Ted Post who wanted a lot of extra scenes put into the film that were not in Milius's script. Okay. Uh, and he, because Milius said, I wrote kind of a small film, dramatic film. Milius was a, um, is, I guess, a, a very much a gun enthusiast. And so that he, he put a lot of material about guns in the script. Yeah. Now, I would argue that that survives in what's on the screen, but Milius wanted a much more streamlined, smaller film yeah. without a lot of the action scenes and stunts that are in the final product. I suspect there are some... No, I'm just going to say, I don't know if this is right, but I bet Eastwood and Post were probably more aligned on those extra bits than than Milius was in wanting a smaller film because, because of Eastwood's real understanding of what makes audiences go, yeah, there's a lot of that in this film. And both Post and Eastwood seem to understand that this is, Magnum Force is definitely not Dirty Harry. Right. I mean, obviously they're different titles, totally different films, in fact. But Eastwood and Post definitely seem to be crafting a less artistic entertainment and more a popcorn film. Did you get yes. that? Yes. 
I'm not. Yeah. I mean, that's not a criticism. I'm just saying that's what they were doing. Oh no, I, I I agree that it's not a criticism. And if if you have a criticism of that, I might push back against it. But I agree with that statement. Absolutely, there's no doubt. Listeners who who've, got, who've been with us in our last episodes, Dirty Harry strives to be a great film, and for the most part, achieves. It. Yeah. Magnum Force is not grasping for that. No. But it doesn't have to either. No. That's something I want to kind of point out before we move on to the content of the film itself. And, and folks, there's a lot of fun little stuff in this film to talk about. But 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 there's a lot of holdovers from Dirty Harry into this film. Lalo Schifrin returns with the score. He does the score, which is similar in texture. And we can talk a little bit about that later. It was some, with some changes. There's yep. some... Uh, Elements that fit the story that are very interesting. John Mitchum returns as uh, as one of the police officers. He was in the first film. Uh, he's well, one of the so, right. He was that so, right. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, um, later in the film, he's on a stakeout, and uh, but but he's one of the uh, um, one of the detectives in the first movie. Yeah, uh, Robert Mitchum's brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't realize that that was the same actor. For some reason, every angle that this what's his, what's the actor's name again? Mitchum. What? John Mitchum. John Mitchum. For some reason, in every angle except. Of course, from the back, John Mitchum looks like he's got a ponytail. And I, right. I, I, I was like, does this guy have a ponytail? This is weird because I couldn't tell. And then, of course, he finally turns around. And I'm like, how does his hair fool me every time I see him on this? <laughs> now, so a lot of holdovers, a lot of continuity, a lot of tonal things hold over from Dirty Harry. The film opens almost grindhouse in its yeah. in its gratuity and simplicity. But folks, the, the film opens on Lala Schifrin's score and a red background and yeah. the 44 Magnum, 6.5 inch barrel, and what we presume is Clint Eastwood's hand holding it. And it goes on and on and on through the opening credits until the very end when basically uh, Eastwood recapitulate, uh, sorry, re recites his lines from the earlier film in a much more laid back, almost jazzy way. This is a 44 yeah. Magnum. You can almost, it's almost like a beat poem at this point, you know, to blow your head clean off. Well, you gotta ask yourself one question. You feel lucky. And then boom. And then it cuts a courthouse with what we are to assume is an egregious audience. You guys may be a, a little prepared to sympathize with th the citizens of San Francisco being so dissatisfied with court opinions right now. If you if you are like me a little bit and upset with SCOTUS, you're going to feel the pain of San Francisco with this terrible decision that seems to have taken place in the San Francisco court of law, a mob. Oh, Jason's got it. Jason wants to interrupt me here. I want to introduce a thread that I suspect that we will both follow the rest of the way. Okay. From this scene on, there are many aspects to this movie that can be found in the Christopher Nolan Batman films, specifically Batman Begins. Oh, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. But... I, I only noticed it. And folks, I've, I I originally saw this movie five, six years ago, all the way through. And uh, and then I watched it a couple weeks ago. And then I watched it again a couple days ago. And it's only a couple days ago that I started to actually find this thread. Well, they're, they're almost the same movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, there are many like specific differences in the storyline. Thematically, there are they are the same movie. Well, 
This is such, I want to, I want to, that's a great thread to lay down, but I kind of want to go back to the pulpy simplicity of this scene. So we get, we get, uh, it's almost like the script is having a go at us. It's like, it's like uh, taking the piss as the British say, but would you like to talk about the technicality that, that your client got off on? Well, the technicality is beyond explaining. (laughs) what the lawyer says which is almost like the screenwriter saying yeah we're not gonna fucking try this this guy this mobster this labor racketeer has somehow managed to kill a labor reformer and his entire family and gotten away with it on some unexplainable technicality well but so but there's some good storytelling here because it's great you just laid that out and that is lit and i feel like i know what happened and that that literally happens in 10 seconds of, of dialogue. Oh, it's, it's, no, I mean, it's, it's, I, I said it was a simple opening and, and it is really using every screenwriter's trick to move this plot along. And it's, yes. you could accuse it of being lazy and maybe it is, but it's entirely efficient, right? Because we already kind of know that one of the things that drives Harry is his dissatisfaction with the system and indeed drives a lot of politics, both right and left is a dissatisfaction with the system. And drives these movies. Yes, I mean, exactly, exactly. Right. So, but, but, but this is a good uh, time to point out, this is the longest Dirty Harry film. It is. This is not, this is not a film that... Now, you suggested laziness and that's you were not unjust to say that but this is not a film that tries to keep its length to an hour and a half this this movie's more than two hours so what i said is you could accuse it of being lazy i would accuse it of being efficient i wouldn't necessarily say that it was being lazy and then sometimes those things overlap and there have been diagrams but i think this does a great job of kind of laying some groundwork that is going to be necessary later on and justify not justify but explain some of the behaviors of our characters later on but i want to credit all of these actors the defense attorney the guy who plays rika i believe these guys are so dislikable and wonderfully dislikable i mean these are melodrama villains and they're at first they kind of start out as being kind of uh jolly about what's just happened but they get increasingly nasty as the scene progresses the client the rika who's gotten away with this murder gets a little more mean with every interviewer question like the reporters are all around him hey what happened what, do you, what what's your opinion and Rika will say something really bad and mean and then the the, 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 the his defense attorney will say what I think Rika means to say it's not it's not unrealistic necessarily it, it, it takes it too far obviously because they don't want us to like these characters but outside as you would expect from progressive San Francisco politics, Everybody is upset. Everybody's pro-labor in San Francisco. So much so that somebody's out there saying, uh, asking the everyman interviewer, this this reporter says, what do you think of this verdict? I'll tell you what I think of this verdict. Fuck the courts is what I think. Everybody's pro-labor in San Francisco. So obviously everybody's upset about this. They're probably pro-not killing families too, I'm going to guess. And right. so there's this near riot outside and this, this, this Rika, who's been kind of glib and smarmy and arrogant up to this point gets really aggressive because he needs to get to his car and audience i noticed a wonderful unexpected cameo as i'm watching this riot near riot outside i saw a face 
in the crowd. And I said, there's no way it could be that face. And audience, Carl Weathers is in the crowd as one of the rioters. Carl Weathers is, of course, Apollo Creed. Carl Weathers is, more importantly, Action Jackson. And... Uh, but Carl Weathers is out there, fresh maybe from the guns of Navarone, not the guns of Navarone, Force 10 from Navarone. I don't think, has Rocky happened yet? No. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm hitting all these Carl Weathers high points and, and Jason shares my love of the great actor, Carl Weathers. You guys may know Carl Weathers um, more as uh, Grief from Mandalorian, uh, but he is a, he is a fixture uh, or, or Tobias Fugace acting coach in Arrested Development. Anyway, folks, Carl Weathers is such a fixture to Jason and I that, that it made me really happy to just see him pumping his fist. Jason, did, did you see Carl Weathers? Did you catch his face in the scene? You, you had texted me about it. I looked for him. I missed it. I did not see it. But I double-checked, and indeed on IMDb trivia, Carl Weathers is a legit extra in the scene. Carl Weathers belonged in Dirty Harry. He should have gotten more roles in Dirty Harry, but, but oh. uh, Carl Weathers belongs in everything i think uh, is my that's my opinion <laughs> that's right everybody pause the podcast right now if you don't own it rent it on a streaming service watch the argument between arnold schwarzenegger and carl weathers in predator it's right after the raid at the gorilla camp carl weathers was a fine actor who got typecast and 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 didn't get as much work as he deserved think about rocky carl weathers should have been in everything he was a great actor oh, man. Max, hold on. I oh, mean, maybe I've overstepped or or, or overstated my case. Not, but you just mentioned Predator. But of course, we have an obsessive fan base who have seen the film because we've already reviewed that. It's true. It's true. But I, I, I want people to go back and watch that scene. I used you to get the job done. Got it? Audience Predator was one of the movies in my mental rotation that I could, like Jason, could with Raiders of the Lost Ark, recite almost from memory. I could have performed it like Homer did the Iliad. Anyway, Carl Weathers is in the scene. Look for him and then pat yourself on the back and take a shot. The the Rika and his gang get increasingly rough with the press as they get to their limo and they drive away. And then... <laughs> In one of the most impotent interviews ever, the DA is asked a question by the uh, by a reporter. What do you think happened? What what, what do you think? What, what's your opinion of this, DA? And the DA says, "Well, this happened before. It'll probably happen again." I have no further comment. <laughs> Walks off, and uh, that's the last we see of the DA. The DA is pretty useless, and apparently, so are the courts. At that point, we we see some of this in an in a old TV in a patrolman in a highway patrolman's a motorcycle patrolman's house. I guess is what we're supposed to see. And the guy suits up, puts on his jacket and his his uh, duty belt and his revolver. Folks, the apparently the San Francisco PD used a like John Milius. I've sort of become a, a bit of a gun aficionado. In, in my old age. They're using uh, blued Colt Pythons. That's what they use in this. And, uh, and so we see a patrolman gear up for the day. We're not sure who this patrolman is, but... That's the scene. Jason, do you want to add anything to this? I'm kind of laying out the 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 the, the scene. Well, I, I, the shots do not show the face of the patrolman. Again, efficient storytelling. He's watching the television, so we know that he's aware of what's going on. He's preparing for his day. He's getting ready to go out and do something. We don't see who he is. 
So that's what the, 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 the directoral decisions here in the first act of the movie are all about this. We see these, these San Francisco police patrolmen. We don't see their faces. If we ever do see their faces, we see that they're wearing sunglasses. It's hard to tell who they are. It's hard to tell who the actor is that's playing them. Kind of, ki- kind of creates a mystery. Um, we figure it out before Harry I mean but but you know there's something to that too you know to see to see you know the the hero kind of absolutely no I I think I think that there's different ways you could play this and they all could have done well and in this instance we're ahead of Harry yes and that can work if it's done well Uh, and some other film might have chosen to make it more of a mystery for everybody for the viewer and for Harry yeah that's not what this film does but right now it is a mystery so we see that we see that action happening from that we cut to the limo and i tell you what this the ted post and the gang who play these guys do a great job of they're kind of in the limo kind of they're not really saying much but they're kind of gloating and and it's it's kind of a cool scene this is one of those scenes that opens that sort of sets the location we get a lot of establishing shots of the limo rico's limo driving through san francisco locales i think they go across the golden gate bridge jason do you know if i'm right about that i think so yeah yeah and at some point during their gloating ride they're kind of they're kind of uh, nudging each other, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, business going on, like they got away with it. You know, gosh, because an acquittal means that's it. Double jeopardy. They're in the clear. But at some point during this, a highway patrolman gets behind them. Yeah. And the driver notices right away. The driver, the, the two heavies in the front seat know something, notices this right away. They get pulled over and the patrolman goes through the rigmarole. And the driver says, you know who this is behind us and you know who owns this car, yada, yada, yada. He's trying to intimidate the guy with clout, the driver of the limo, There's the patrolman. Yes, I know, sir, but I'm still going to have to see your driver's license and registration. And the, the limo driver is kind of being a dick, right? These guys feel like they are untouchable. Right. Jason, do you have anything you want to add here? Do you want to, I don't want to, I don't want to hog the description of the scene. No, no. I mean, um, this is all very well done. They feel like they're going to get away with it um, because they can threaten this guy's job because in fact and say because he takes the license and he goes back like you know we need to get this guy fired yeah and you get the sense that they can get it done absolutely and the guy comes back and says to the driver is this your car no it's the it's this guy well i'm going to need to see your registration and the guy says something about having to fish it out and as he's beginning to fish it out we get a pretty horrifying scene, not just for 73, but for any era when the officer draws his gun and airs out everybody in the car. Yeah. And what I think is a pretty, it's a really effective scene of uh, cinema violence, I think. Yes. And he kills all the, the, the patrolmen without any real provocation. Dickheadedness is not reasonable cause to draw your weapon and and kill everybody in a car and one of the things i thought was a really nice touch mileage may vary is as the car as as the officer is walking back to his bike we see we see the officer do this through the basically the camera sort of on the dashboard of the limo so we see all the people he's killed and rika 
is still twitching. Yes, yes. And the patrolman gets on his car and drives away, or rides away. I guess that's what you say on a motorcycle. And I thought it was a pretty effective scene of violence. It was a very effective scene, yes. And it's a very effective way to begin the movie. I agree, I agree. It sets up some of what we're going to deal with. And the next scene, it's not quite a smash cut, but it's almost it's almost like Harry's there right away. You know, Harry and his new partner played really well. I, you know, I cannot say enough about Felton Perry's I agree. as as Early Smith. Early Smith is an African American partner. Nothing's really that, that doesn't really factor in in terms of the law enforcement angle. It will factor in a little bit in the way a criminal treats him later on in the movie. But Felton Perry is a really wonderful partner for Dirty Harry. He's new. We get the sense that he's kind of new to the to the department. He and Harry arrive on the scene, and Harry's looking at the the carnage in the car, and he says, "Well, but Harry is no longer in homicide. Mm-hmm. Like you know, that needs to be pointed out, which is slight continuity with." the first film he has been put on um stakeout duty he's on loan to stakeout yeah so he and early they they have showed up they have not been called here no they're just in the area maybe there was a call and harry showed up harry says couldn't happen to a nicer bunch and the the medical examiner is like oh hey harry and they start talking about the 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 crime a little bit and harry and the medical examiner are veterans i mean they've seen all kinds of the stuff you can you can tell early is a little put out by this he'll get more put out as the as the scene goes on but as harry and as Harry and the medical examiner are kind of cutting up, Lieutenant Briggs arrives on scene. And I want to plant a seed. I want to plant a flag here, audience. As Briggs is walking up to to the carnage in the car, he says something that I didn't catch until... I want to say the fourth viewing, maybe, maybe the third. Yeah, one of those two. Somebody saved the taxpayers a lot of money here. And this is going to come up a little later. And it is juxtaposed to everything else Early will say in the film and in the next few moments. But he says that as his initial impression. And then he sees Harry and says, what the hell are you doing here, Harry? And we get the classic friction. Oh, we were in the neighborhood. You're on loan to stick out. You're not on homicide anymore. Jason, you want to talk a little bit about the actor who plays Lieutenant Briggs? I know he's a favorite of yours. Uh, Hal, Hal Holbrook is a veteran actor, has done a lot of television, often been a character actor in a lot of films, died not actually too long ago, mm-hmm. um, is a magnificent actor, very famous actually for doing a, I think I a a play version of Mark Twain, but he also is is uh, right. he's done a very good Abraham Lincoln, an absolutely marvelous actor. And I'll say this right now because you know any action film has to have a good villain. And quite frankly, the film that we reviewed previously, Dirty Harry, has an amazing villain. Hal Holbrook is fantastic in this movie. Fantastic. From the minute he says Callahan, yes, uh, you know, showing immediate contempt for him. And that contempt goes to so many wonderful places in this movie. And Hal Holbrook does all of it perfect. And and, and not just Hal Holbrook, his chemistry with Clint Eastwood is fabulous. Because I mean, just think, if you will, about Eastwood saying Briggs, you know, that name with contempt. And the the dislike that these two have for each other that is uh, it starts as being playful, becomes subtle, and then becomes full 
full-on, I want to kill you, but by the third act is fantastic. Yes. I, wasn't, I wasn't sure when to bring this up, but any action movie is to be, the first thing you have to ask is, do you have a good villain? The answer here is yes. Well, is amazing in this movie. Well, Hal Holbrook is great, and Hal Holbrook begins the film, though, audience, uh, we're kind of telegraphing here a little bit, but I've already seen it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is 1973, but Hal Holbrook begins the film as the bureaucratic villain of the piece, right? He's he's, he's the red tape. He's the character in... He fills the John Vernon role who played the mayor. Yes, yes. He. Uh, but, but whereas John Vernon really just wanted to get the votes, that kind of thing, uh, Briggs has another agenda. He does that, have another agenda. That we're going to learn about later. Briggs is, is, at this moment, Briggs is not the street patrolman in Die Hard. He's the guy who is first calling the shots in Die Hard, the, uh, oh gosh, the, the leader of the SWAT team in Die Hard. He's the guy who gets all mad at John McClane throughout Die Hard. He's the bureaucratic red tape that, that's that's his role right now, Briggs. And well, well, and, and to point out, because we talked about this in Dirty Harry, John Vernon has, has this amazing presence and voice. Yes. Hal Holbrook is able to equal that. And so, you know, if you went to see this movie on Christmas Day of 1973, which I just learned today, this movie was released on Christmas Day. Okay. In 1973, you would have, in these early scenes, this first act, you would have said, wow, they couldn't get John Vernon back. Wow, Hal Holbrook, absolutely perfect replacement. Well, Hal Holbrook does a lot of duties in this. And I wonder, and I wonder too, if Clint Eastwood wasn't seeing some lessons from one of his other mentors, Sergio Leone. So audience, uh, Sergio Leone masterfully used uh, Henry Fonda to be one of his bad guys in yes. one of his films. Once I think Once Upon a Time in the West. Once Upon a Time in the West is Charles Bronson and Henry Fonda. And a great movie, but, but one of the things that really makes that movie sing as a masterpiece, though, is that it used Henry Fonda as the bad guy. Henry Fonda, by that point in his career, was was the night... He was the Tom Hanks of, of that yeah. era. You yeah. know, always plays a nice guy always plays the, the best nice guy and and how Holbrook sort of hits that note for me you know but but in this scene we have this really cool exchange between Harry and and Briggs and Briggs even says it is nothing personal Harry but we can't have the public crying police brutality every time you go out on the street and uh, Harry says well you could use a guy like me on a job like this this guy whoever did this was a pro and he was like Harry you're on loan to stakeout get your ass back there and then but there's a, a line where he says you know I've worked for the department I, well, well, Harry says I'm just a, I'm just a city employee and Briggs says so am i i've been i've been one longer than you harry and in all my years i've never had to pull my gun and i'm proud of that fact and harry says well you're a good man Brig. good man has to know his limitations and it begins the friction but but in this moment they're depicted as very different people and anyway i i think hal holbrook does all this so brilliantly and he's really good at being angry but I, i'll plan on another thread later on but harry and and early leave the scene because briggs has ordered them off the scene and and people are riding early a little bit. Hey, you want to get on this early? And we learn that there's a pool going on to see how long early will last as Harry's partner. And early says, what do you mean? You, well, that's, you know, they're probably betting on how long you're going to live being my partner. And early says, you're kidding, right? He's like, no. Well, what happened to your last partner? And Harry says, well, that guy's, uh, he's, he lasts about two weeks. <laughs> 
Yeah, but he didn't die. I, I think he says that he went to do something else. Well, yeah, he's teaching. He's teaching college. Yeah, which his partner in Dirty Harry did survive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And moved on. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, so they're they're, they're referencing the last film, and then they they end up going to an old buddy of Harry's who runs a diner out at the airport. Back when you could just walk into the airport and do something. Right. Like nobody who's, who's an ex cop and has the same kind of uh, desensitization to violence. That Harry does. Yes, yes, because as they're going off to get Mexican burger, best burgers in in San Francisco. You're hungry after seeing something like that, says Early, and and Harry says, seeing what? And then Early is of course treated to the to the banter of Harry and this 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 guy at the at the hamburger shop in the airport. Early is a new cop. He's not inured to this kind of grotesque scene that he saw in the earlier and Harry's just eating this hamburger and this while Harry's eating this hamburger this other old cop is just talking about grizzly murder after grizzly murder it's kind of classic but this sort of indicates to me that the film is a popcorn movie because this is this is a gag right it's a gag that is is kind of um almost like a imitating a serious noir film because as we talked about the first dirty Harry film is most Mostly a very serious noir film. Yes. And this film is like, well, you know, this is a sequel. So, you know, we're going to kind of, we're going to kind of stay on that wavelength, but we're going to kind of go off the, uh, into other directions here and there. So, yes. uh, Yeah. This is, I mean, this is a bit of a comedy beat, totally. Yes. And, 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 and in fact, the next, action beat is a comedy beat folks one of the things you're going to get acquainted with in at least the next couple films is that harry happens into almost any violent action that's going on in san francisco yes but 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 i do want to stop and linger on that for a second that is the the charm of these early i I shouldn't say the early dirty harry films almost all the dirty harry films these are uh, some of the best scenes of most of the films is when harry has to deal with this situation as only harry can as only harry can and this is that uh, absolutely absolutely so the the diner operator notices that there's a basically the distress call of the airport he recognizes it because he's been there oh, some kind of trouble harry that's the airport distress signal and harry goes and investigates and finds out that there are wouldn't you know it hijackers with a plane full of people that need to get someplace go ahead well I, you know, I compliment for the film because actually, okay, let's start with this. This scene's ridiculous. (laughs) Totally ridiculous. But, but you know, it's set up very well. It is. You know, so there's all this airport security and have you called the FBI? Yeah, they're on their way. We don't know what to do. Then they just have, and only Clint Eastwood could do this. This is a, this is a movie star. This, this, this film, this is a movie star at the height of his power. Harry says, can I make a suggestion? Yes. Now that's ridiculous, but just framing it that way and having Clint Eastwood deliver the line, just, just just dissolves all of that. All of the ridiculous, all of the ridiculousness just kind of dissolves and just kind of fritters into the corners of the room. And and we're totally on board. You know, there's, yeah, absolutely. there's none of that because uh, because this is a ridiculous situation, but it, it's it's directed well. And Eastwood's talents as a movie star who commands the screen are utilized very well in this scene and sets it up very well. And so by the time we get in the plane. Yeah. We're totally on board, in my opinion. Oh, 
completely on board. Anything ridiculous about this is, is, is not anywhere in our mind. It's totally forgiven. It's a totally forgiven moment. Harry, Harry's suggestion is, of course, that the airport should send him out dressed as a captain, uh, able to fly international flights. And he boards the plane. And he's a, the actors who... Uh, it's it's so well done. The actors who play the terrorists or the hijackers or whatever, you know, they're playing it pretty straight, right? Yes. And and so they frisk Harry. What's in the bag? Oh, flight chart. Harry gets in the cockpit and Harry is. Well, where do you guys want to go? Well, you get us in there and I'll tell you where we're gonna go. And then Harry looks over to the. I said the unsung heroes of this scene are the the normal captain and the navigator on the plane, at, who are the co-pilots, right? Yeah. And and Harry says, well, you want to get us into uh, take off position and the captain one of the things i love about this actor is he already seems to know that harry has no idea what he's doing as a pilot right yeah. i think the captain or the co-pilot whatever his first officer yeah first officer knows there's something up and and uh the ter- the the hijacker behind harry is getting increasingly upset and harry says uh okay well i'll take it from here and he starts to <laughs> drive the plane and I, I i tell you one of my favorite moments of this film is when the first officer says excuse me captain <laughs> i know this may sound silly but um do you know how to fly and what's harry say jason ever had a lesson yeah and and this goes back to that moment that you that you were saying earlier that everything sort of hinges now on clint eastwood to carry this moment yes and when he says nope yeah yeah and then 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 says the line never had a lesson the the shock in the hijacker has to feel real and it all just works really well harry slams on the brakes mayhem ensues harry hammer fists this hijacker into unconsciousness before going out and taking care of the other the other uh, hijacker. Uh, you want to say anything else about the the scene? Yeah, I do because actually on the last viewing, I was listening very closely and I wanted to compliment the sound design because actually, if uh, if you've been on a on a plane, folks, you know that you know when a plane taxis, it just kind of and then and then it stops at a certain point and then there's this where the, the the engines just really kind of scream as it as it gets ready for takeoff if you listen to the sound design what you'll find is you'll is you'll hear that sound that and then and then it'll go down and then it'll go up and then it'll go down and it's almost like Harry's you know manipulating these controls he has no idea what they do yep. he's 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 starting up the engines and he's turning them down and then he's starting them up and then he's turning them down and maybe it was my imagination but I actually felt like the sound design kind of gave us a sense of what the first officer actually saw uh, and that the hijacker didn't see yeah well you know I guess this is just what they do yeah uh, who's been in this situation a thousand times is like he doesn't know what he's doing <laughs> yes no and 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 but like yeah so that all works Clint Eastwood smile when he says nope <laughs> it's it's all perfect and and i agree that the sound design in the plane is great just generally because a it sets the the expectation for the viewer anybody who's flown has heard a lot of these sounds before like when the plane's taxiing normally it all sounds pretty like all all sounds like things you've heard on the plane now uh harry goes out and dispatches the the second hijacker quite easily and one of the things that harry does a couple times in this film and i'm going to caution uh people in law enforcement 
enforcement on is after they've maybe dispatched the villain of any particular moment, you should at least go the extra five or 10 yards to make sure, kick the gun away from the person. Because Harry shoots this guy who's at the back of the plane. Harry's maybe 10 yards away. It's a a great scene. But then he doesn't go and examine the guy at all. He just turns around and walks off. It's a movie star scene. It It is a total movie star scene. And it works in that regard, but it definitely takes us away from the noir procedural that we saw in the last film. Movie start. That's very true. This is this is the scene that basically sets some of the tone that this is going to be a lighter movie. Yes, I I would agree. I I would definitely agree with that. And in fact, you know, one of the things I I think Anya even kind of suggested that, like, you know, that 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 in the last uh, review that we did for the Dirty Harry film, that you know, that Harry Callahan's more like a um, she didn't say this, but I mean, like a superhero kind of figure as opposed to a to, you know to a character yes a real person he's almost like a superhero and yep. in, and in this film it's a little more so now there are still some character arcs that are left over from the first film we'll get to those yeah but um but no, I, I think you're totally right that that um, there's a lot, you know, a lot of these scenes are played for an audience that already know this character because they've mm-hmm. already seen him in the previous film. Absolutely. While this is happening, Briggs is rushing to the scene and and he's informed that, well, luckily one of your officers was there. One of our officers is there. Yeah, Harry Callahan. And he's immediately, you can tell he's not happy about that. When he gets to the plane, he's reaching for his gun. I don't, did you notice that Briggs is, reaching for his gun. No, I didn't notice that. And Harry comes down and basically knows he's untouchable in this moment by Briggs. And I want to plant another flag here, though, on Briggs. Harry, he and Harry have a couple of words, and Harry gloats a little bit as he walks off. As he walks off, Briggs is giving him a dirty look, but then that dirty look sort of starts to curl into a half smile. Did you notice that? I, I think that I did. Um, because, I mean, well, I mean, one of the things about this movie that is kind of interesting is that, you know, Harry Callahan should be a hero to the villains. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's not really ruining anything because we already know that there's police officers are the killers in this yeah. movie and they kill villains. Uh, well, I mean, I guess we'll have to qualify that later, but I mean, well, yeah. Um, but, 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 you know, in their mind, they are ridding the society of the people that Harry would also like to rid the society of. Yes. Harry and early walk off Briggs gives him the look. And I think the next scene and correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, do we get Harry bumping in? into McCoy. Uh, um, that is the next scene. Uh, McCoy played by Mitchell Ryan. Mitchell Ryan, I think, goes on to become a really great villain in Lethal Weapon 1. Mitchell Ryan doing his best Hal Holbrook for Weapon 1, yes. And he is as fantastic as Hal Holbrook in that movie. I, I agree. You know, I, I, I'll i just say this now. He's not as fantastic here. No. I actually... No, he isn't. I, and I like Mitchell Ryan a lot, but yeah. but it's, it's not his fault. I, I look, So I, I, I think I know where you're going, and I'm going to offer this to get Mitchell Ryan a little bit out of it. The script calls for Ryan McCoy to be a bit un 
unhinged to be at the end of his tether, right? Like he's a person who's about to break mentally. Harry knows it. Everybody who knows McCoy knows that. And I don't necessarily think it's unrealistic, but McCoy seems kind of drunk. So Harry's walking across a parking lot. He almost gets hit by a guy in a yellow uh, mu uh, muscle car. And the guy gets out of the car and it looks like he's about to give Harry a problem for what he's almost just done, right? Uh, not Harry, but I mean the guy driving the car. And it is this patrolman, uh, McCoy. And he sees Harry and he kind of backs down a little bit. His aggression goes down a bit. I could have killed you, Harry. And Harry says, yeah, I noticed. And then McCoy, we get this crazy ranting from this detective who seems a little, not detective, but a patrolman who seems a little drunk. Did you get the sense that he was a little drunk? Yeah, and and he's not been doing well. And But but Harry knows him. He's a friend of his. And now, so here's the thing. I, I actually, I didn't like Mitchell Ryan in this scene. I don't like Mitchell Ryan in this movie. Uh, not necessarily because of him. I think that the story arc, which was well thought out, yeah. doesn't quite land. Uh, because really what ends up happening is that is that the character, Mitchell Ryan's character of McCoy, is supposed to be kind of like a red herring for Harry and maybe even for us. And it doesn't quite work. Yes. No, I, I hadn't thought of that. But that's that. I think that that's like, I didn't, I don't actually have a problem with the McCoy character. But when you say that he's supposed to be the red herring for Harry, which he does function in that role. Um, yes. But he doesn't function in that role for us. And yeah, it doesn't work for us. And that's a problem. Now, there are, there are aspects like Harry, we discover very soon after this, that Harry regularly goes to his ex-wife's house and hangs out with her. Yeah. McCoy's ex-wife. McCoy's ex-wife. That's awesome. All of that stuff is, is amazing. And actually, the scene that, Max, you're talking about where um, he talks to McCoy, Eastwood is amazing in that scene. He is. Ryan is not. Uh, I, I actually don't think Mitchell Ryan acquits himself well. I, I, I don't blame him for that. I think that Ted Post didn't quite in his direction, didn't quite. And, and actually, we'll get to this. I do want to talk about Ted Post's direction. But I would, I, I think that I would say this. The biggest failure of Ted Post's direction in this film is that he really, this story arc with, with McCoy doesn't fully land for me. Eastwood, one of the things I love about this scene is that McCoy in in maybe the worst dialogue in the whole movie because it's a little too predictable like oh you know he talks about you know um you're more likely to go to jail than the criminals if you shoot them this kind of thing and, and yeah. it's just too predictable and i didn't really like that but what i really liked about it was harry saying well you know what maybe maybe you need to do something else yeah and and, and the reason i like that is because harry gets it like like harry's like anybody would go crazy dealing with what we have to deal with he didn't you know his attitude was not oh well you're just you're just a wimp yeah attitude was go do something else what? i agree this this sucks but harry can do it harry he's accepted this is what I, which is why max and, we, and actually we might need to linger on this for a second because folks if you remember max and i talked about how both of us disagreed about the ending of dirty harry where he throws the badge away because Harry is not going to do that. Harry, this is this is who he is. His wife is dead. You know, he 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 goes after criminals and he he cuts he breaks rules to get them. And uh, and and here in this movie, we're still learning about where Harry's line is. We are learning about that. Harry knows where it is. But Harry, I, I kind of like the fact that he was like, yeah, why would you do this job? Go do something else. Go take care of yourself. And I like that. I like that Harry instead of 
of like not respecting somebody who didn't have his strength was more like, you know, yeah, really, that's the same thing to do. What I'm doing is not sane. And I kind of like that. I kind of like that part of it. I just didn't, I just didn't think they did well with McCoy's character with uh yeah. Oh, I think that's right because McCoy, I think Post should have come, Ted Post, the director, should have come in and said, I like what you're doing, Ryan, but pull it down a little bit because that would have matched what Dirty Harry was doing because, I'm sorry, uh, what Eastwood was doing. Because one of the other things that's happening there uh, that I think is so brilliant on the part of Eastwood, he doesn't often get credit for being a good actor, but he actually really quite, he is quite good. He looks taken aback and almost shocked by his friend's behavior. Yeah. That, that's the other thing that's going on. Like, he's like, what is happening to my friend? That's the, that that's the thing. And he's trying to navigate how to help his friend in that moment. He's a little shocked by the guy. You know, I mean, he'll say it later on, but he definitely thinks that McCoy should hang it up. He's not yeah. everything that you said, but he does it in a very human way. And he kind of watches his buddy, his old friend or, or associate. Maybe they're not tight, but he's he's concerned. And that shows through. Harry seems. Well, see, I think they are very tight because, look, I mean, he's been hanging out with this guy's ex-wife a lot. Yeah, He's been cooking dinners for him, but he's never made a pass at her. And I would argue because of his loyalty to him. Uh, that's a great point. That's a great point. So Harry watches the guy go away and then Harry goes on into the range. And as he's approaching the range, he hears gunfire in the range. And this is where we meet four patrolmen, four yep. motorcycle yep. cops, it seems. Okay. They are played by David Soule, Tim Matheson, Kip Niven, who, like I said, wasn't quite the leading man type, and then Robert Urich. Now, three of these people would go on to have middling careers as leading men in television, sometimes in movies. Tim Matheson maybe in movies a little bit, but not great. They always always worked. Robert Urich was uh who's the most successful of these leading men, do you think? Oh, Robert Urich by far. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he, he did Vegas. He did spend Spencer for Hire. Spencer for Hire, yeah. For Hire. And then he was also in Lonesome Dove. And yeah, he's deceased now. Yeah. But also, you know, did a few movies as well. David Soul, Tim Matheson, and Robert Urich have definitely worked their whole career. Uh, you know, uh, I think Tim Matheson still gets jobs. David Soul, of course, did Starsky and Hutch. Yeah. Did a turn in Salem's Lot as well, Stephen from a Stephen King book. Not bad in that role. I think it's safe to say that with the exception of a couple bright television spots, they never had the cinema success. No, I mean, uh, in the 80s, Robert Urich would have been routinely identifiable. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's as far as he went. Yeah. These guys are in the in the range, and we get a sense that there's a big shooting competition coming up within the police department, the, I guess, some kind of combat shooting championship, and we find that Harry competes in it every year. He's sort of an institution. Harry comes at this time of night because it's the only time of night that he gets the range to himself and David Soul sort of seems like the leader of these guys. They're all former army rangers, special forces, yep. and they're all very good shooters. And they all use 357 Magnums, which is going to come up. It's already come up once in the film, I think, the 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 357 Magnum because the medical examiner talks about a 357 Magnum or a Magnum being used in the killing of Rika and his limo band. But they watch Harry shoot his 44 Magnum and they take one of them take a run. Tim Matheson takes a run with the 44 Magnum. Misses. But Harry immediately likes these people. And I kind of want to credit David Soule and Tim Matheson for making these people likable from the get-go. 
Did you get that sense that they're kind of likable? Uh, yeah, and and actually the sense that Harry likes them. Yes. Is, you know, and, and how he's like, you know, uh, you know, these these are guys in, you know, if early ever moves on, I would want one of them next to me. Now, but, but I also want to linger on this and I want to get your input on this. I think Ted Post deserves a lot of credit because John Milius, when he wrote the original script, he was a gun enthusiast. And in the script, he wanted the gun work to be very realistic. Yeah. And beginning in this scene, and this is carried through to the rest of the movie because everyone look we've all watched action movies we all know about the gun with the endless clip and all that kind of thing yep. this movie is very consistent from start to finish that people you, you, the villains the the hero they're always reloading their guns yes and dropping their casings on the floor yeah and it is it is really cool to see because it's not necessarily something that you would even see in a modern film and it sticks out and i think it needs to be mentioned. Well, absolutely. And we kind of learned too, Harry Callahan when he's at the range, uses now I've heard some people give the script hell for this. Uh, Taron Butler the guy who trains Keanu Reeves sort of doesn't like a moment in this scene when Sweet that's the Tim Matheson character says what are you using that? Uh, and Harry says, I use a 44 light special. And and he talks about how it gets less kick and recoil than the 357 Magnum. And some people criticize this, but to me this just indicates that Harry at the range uses 44 special which is a different round than a 44 magnum audience I'll, I'll I'll get into the weeds a little bit here a 357 magnum and a 44 magnum are both capable of shooting different rounds a 357 can shoot 38 special which is a much lighter round to shoot and a 44 magnum can shoot a 44 special which is a lighter round to shoot it recoils less and it's a great way to train without necessarily brutalizing yourself with heavier magnum loads and so it gives you a go ahead well so is that Amelia's line then i bet it has to be uh, i don't know if there's something called a, a 44 light special but he probably could have just said i just shoot 44 special when i'm at the range i'm trying to get used to my sight picture and not have to compensate for this massive recoil that i'm going to have to deal with from the 44 magnum now audience that doesn't go the other way if you have a 44 special don't put a 44 magnum in the gun because you're basically turning your gun into a grenade but but because of the way these guns are designed uh and the diameters of their bullets are such you can go back and forth between those two rounds now with 357 and 38 special it's also cheaper to shoot 38 special than 357 it's not that way with 44 special 44 special is an old cowboy round both of these rounds audience sorry i'm getting the weeds a little bit more here both of these rounds 44 magnum and 357 magnum were in part designed by the same person a guy named elmer keith uh now keith didn't have keith had a huge hand in developing the 44 magnum it was several different people in the 30s who developed together developed the 357 magnum in part to deal with all of the crime during the prohibition gangster era gangsters had these uh automatic weapons they had tommy guns they had all these things and some of them some of the gangsters in the 30s and 20s were wearing body armor and the 38 special wasn't cutting it and so people from smith and wesson and some other engineers including elmer keith developed the 357 magnum to help air out their difficulties with the mobsters of the 30s anyway so uh but these these uh, for a long time the 357 magnum was the most powerful round 
later supplanted by the 44 Magnum. But these officers use the, these patrol officers use the 357 Magnum while they're training. And so they're dealing with this incredible recoil and, and muzzle rise. When Harry's at the range, he's trained sensibly. I, I think that that has to absolutely be Milius being kind of a, a guy interested in firearms because that's what you do. You train to understand your, your gun a little bit, to understand your sight picture, not to brutalize your hand. <laughs> Right. right, and which is why he's able to shoot his his forty four Magnum with one hand. Now they kind of play with this a little bit because when Sweet picks up the gun, if it really is supposed to be a forty four special, uh, he shouldn't really have that much trouble with it. But maybe Harry switched it out and put forty four Magnum rounds in just to kind of test Sweet. But anyway, whatever. Sweet clearly dealing with a hell of a kick. So maybe that's an error on the film's part, but it doesn't really bother me that much. The other thing that's really nice with this and. And with this scene and with all of the the shooting training scenes is how precise and pretty well done the flash of the gun is with the squib. The timing of the flash of the gun and the squib on the target is really good. You know, because they're they're using blanks and they're using squibs. Squib is a little exploding charge that you put in an item on screen. It blows up audience. If you don't know, I mean, you're listening to the show, so you should know what a squib is. But when an actor is doing the, their, their shooting training, training it doesn't look terribly out of sync to me it looks really good i i, I want to go back to that post and milius everybody seemed to work really hard to make this stuff work the gunplay work yeah and so anyway I, I think this is a kind of a fun scene where we we meet these guys and we see that harry likes them a lot and then the next scene is harry at mccoy's house i think is that right well um mccoy doesn't live there anymore it's his ex-wife well that's right that's right because she says that he had wanted to come and see the kids yes and he had flipped out so yeah so because they're divorced and so she's regularly giving him a chance but then she has to kind of push him away and i so i think this is all really great because you get the sense harry goes and hangs out with her a lot yeah you know she cooks for him they talk they hang out the kids go to bed and he does not make a pass at her and it's because she says why have you never made a pass at me and then when she's about to make a pass at him you know the kids start acting up and she makes the comment that you know she's never going to get laid yeah um but but you kind of get the sense that harry she he takes care of her he likes her company but he's not he's not going to take advantage of yeah his, either of his friends psd yeah basically. i mean i think he thinks both of the of thinks of both of them as friends yes both the, both, both the wife and mccoy and i i don't get the sense that he thinks she's unattractive or anything like that, but i think that he is keeping his boundaries because he likes both of them and doesn't want to probably cross a line that will damage his relationship with both either or both of them. So, I mean, and this is interesting, and this is true of the first film too. Harry has a certain amount of self-awareness. We may not like the the conclusions that he comes to, but Harry Harry knows what he's doing. Yeah. And every decision that he makes in terms of how he lives his life, how he relates to people, it makes sense to him. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I see here is that, you know, Harry does not, um, he has boundaries that he sets up. Yes. Ba- and the boundaries make sense to him. And and that's all that that's all that matters. Because in this scene, important that he never says this in the scene, because we assume that he's never said it to her. You know, he never says to her, look, your husband, your ex, your ex is my friend. Yeah. You know, he he doesn't even go there. 
He just shows up, he hangs out, he eats her food, he plays with her kids, he talks to her. You know, they spend a lot of time together, but he's not going to do a lot of explaining as to why he doesn't do this or why he doesn't do that. Yeah. Uh, that's not what Harry does. You know, I mean, he he doesn't relate to people that way. And, you know, he is absolutely a man of action. I think I should back up a little bit. Prior to seeing him sitting on the couch, well, he walks from the dinner table to the couch. He gets a beer. This is kind of a fixture in a lot of Clint Eastwood movies. Clint Eastwood always has a scene where his one of his characters has a can of beer, opens, drinks it from this film all the way to Heartbreak Ridge and beyond. This is something kind of a, I, I don't know if trope is the right word, but it is a signature of his characters. Often this scene exists. But prior to that, our patrolman hit again at a pool. And we've, I don't know if this is going to be a, uh, signature throughout the film of uh, uh, people getting shot in pools, but because it happens at the beginning of the first film. But uh, we see a patrolman entering kind of a posh neighborhood that hasn't quite developed. It's it's on the way. It's developing. There are these houses dotted on this California countryside. It's mostly grassland. And at the party, there is an ecstatic woman. Somebody has proposed to her. This woman, by the way, audience, will become a fixture of late 70s television in a few years, Suzanne Summers is the actress who gets the wedding ring. You have got to be kidding me. I am not kidding you. Not recognized her. I didn't recognize her either, but Suzanne Summers' audience would go on to become quite famous in a television series with John Ritter and I can't remember the other actress's name. And it sort of Joyce, DeWitt. Joyce DeWitt. I'm sorry, I fucking dropped it. Lord Movies is going to punish me with nightmares tonight of Joyce DeWitt's zombie form. Uh, if she's dead, I don't know if she is, but, but they were... I fucked it all up. I'm really going to get it from Lord Movies. But Three's Company was one of the premier sitcoms of its age. And the, she, the, huh? the, it was the premier. Oh, the premier. I'm sorry. Sorry. And I think it I think it's still kind of watchable in a way that some shows from that era aren't. I mean, it's problematic, obviously, but but she was on the show until she pissed everybody off and they kicked her off and she was replaced. Suzanne Summers, I mean to say. But here she is just an extra actress uh, long before Three's Company long before the thigh master that she would hawk with such vigor in the late 80s and early 90s, long before her her love affair with uh, supplements and whatever other dumb shit she's got into since then. Suzanne Summers really went off the rails uh, late, later in life. Maybe earlier, if you were to listen to Joyce DeWitt and John Ritter and a lot of other members of the cast of Three's Company. But in this, uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting moment. Uh, she gets the wedding ring and and I can't remember what this person, what somebody at this party is a criminal. Not everybody at the party is a criminal, by the way. But, th but they're all going to die. They're all going to die. And this guy throws a smoke bomb in what looks like a bowling bag at the party. And then he unloads on them with, the, with impunity. This is another moment, audience, where I, I always forget about how uh, cavalier the 70s was with nudity in films, because by the just before this, everybody's taken off their tops, and everybody's excited. I've been proposed to by my husband, so the first thing Suzanne Summers does is take off her bikini top at the party. Uh, decadent people, but maybe not everybody at the party is a criminal, but this patrolman kills everybody. Yeah. And it's pretty brutal. And the next thing we see, I think we cut to hair, or no, we, we cut to the uh, Briggs at the scene. This is all a little before the scene with uh, McCoy's wife. Briggs is there examining the scene. The press is there. 
and the press is trying to get some information out of Briggs. And Briggs says something so catastrophically stupid, but so perfectly bureaucratic. He says, people aren't going to throw bombs at pools anymore. We will have law and order. And he, and he says, that's all I have to say. And I was so happy that a reporter said what immediately popped into my head. What does that even mean? Or something like that, you know? And Briggs walks off. And But it's it's such... One of the things I've enjoyed ab- about these films is how sometimes perfect for any age they are. Because yeah. that is the kind of platitude nonsense that you could get today from a yeah. politician, you know? Anyway, while Harry is being romantically accosted by the very friendly friend of his, he gets a call, I think, to come. And doesn't he get a call there? And he has to leave the scene? Oh, I forgot. There's still stakeout. There's still stakeout. So he doesn't get a call for this attack he gets a call to go for their stakeout job at the supermarket at the supermarcado yeah which um this is kind of the second act of the film yep and this is kind of the major action beat in the second act of the film it's one of my favorite action sequences in the film actually yes yes i i agree i i like this scene a lot and which isn't to say that there aren't quite a few other good action beats to come in the film but this because of the psychological element of it all i i really like this scene uh, again because of felton uh sorry I, I lost his name here uh felton perry he's so good in this scene which is early smith clint eastwood's partner in the film it seems to me it's implied at any rate that Early and Eastwood and his stakeout team are trying to bust some kind of crew of store robbers. Who have who have regularly been robbing stores, including this one. Yeah. Because they even point out that there's a guy at the magazine rack. You know, the last time they got robbed, he was seen in the store. Yeah. And that guy's the guy who cases out the joints and maybe is their getaway driver. Correct. Yeah. So he's in there. Harry's watching. Harry comes in. There's a uniform officer. They're behind the one-way glass and early smith is undercover as a clerk at the store and the the case the case guy the the getaway driver sees all he's needed to see and he goes out and gets into the car in which three or four other people i think it's three three and 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 harry and early uh and then there's also an officer uh behind the 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 non-see-through glass with harry reflect glass uh with harry they all know what's about to happen it's not they're not taken unawares they they know what's about to happen and they're all prepared for it i want to i want to say something about this scene actually because i was actually kind of taken aback by some of the realism of it i recently for some reason ended up seeing a robbery video uh, a shootout video of a smoke shop in la Mm -hmm. and the perpetrators of that attempted robbery fan out almost exactly the same way the the bad guys in this scene fan out on the clerks okay it's sort of interesting like these guys aren't obviously master robbers but they have an instinct for being quote-unquote highwaymen so it this kind of thing happens and sometimes it happens in this way and the only thing that i think our heroes do wrong here is they don't the only way to get out of this is to act preemptively and maybe maybe they're wrong so they early doesn't have his gun ready harry and the officer behind the one-way glass are ready but by the time anybody could act these bad guys have their guns out on the clerk staff between harry the patrolman and and when early goes down to get what looks like another 357 it's a little too late for him to act in that moment right and and so the, the robbers get the drop on them, and these robbers are pretty awful people. Elton Perry is given a lot of uh, visual material, not necessarily yep. 
all. But in terms of how to stare down these robbers, he, he's actually given a lot of great moments. He is, um, because the robbers like immediately single him out because he's black. Yeah. Of course, they use the N-word on him a few times. They want him to suck on the barrel of this double barrel shotgun while the clerk that they've just brutalized, this old man, is supposed to go find the, the safe. And and he does not flinch. Early, we don't get as much of early as I would like based on, I mean, Felton Perry is so good in this role. I wanted more of early. We get enough, we get a lot of him and I like everything we get, but I wanted more of him. He's such a, he's such a likable, strong character. And yeah. we see a lot of his resolve and character because he's not going to kowtow to these guys at all. And he doesn't suck the barrel of the shotgun, even though this guy's threatened to kill him. And the guy sort of backs off on that. He does. It does look like he might try and further intimidate him. And he tells Perry to kneel. And I, I tell you what, I think the only reason why, sorry, not Perry, but but Early Smith, the only reason why I think Smith was kneeling was because it was going to give him a better angle on that gun beneath the counter. Yeah. You know, and the other thing he might have been thinking too was Harry's in the Harry's behind him, uh, waiting for that right moment to take out that guy with a shotgun. Yeah, and if I if I get down, Harry's gonna blow his head off. Exactly. Now that's exactly what happens. The guy's head doesn't come clean off, but he drops, and that's pretty much the end of that guy. And and then a really kind of fairly realistic, not slick shootout occurs. But it is, I think, in keeping with John Milius's sense of real gunplay because I want to I want to credit the film here a little bit uh when Smith pursues the bad guy one of the bad guys out of the store he yells freeze and the bad guy spins to turn around and try and get a shot off on early but early does something that actually is tactically pretty sound it's called uh, getting off the X he doesn't stand in front of the guy like people who just shoot at the range all the time he steps over to his right and the person when the person spins and shoots early's not there he's got out of the line of fire and then he shoots the guy and yeah. it's it's a subtle thing it's a little thing but it's something that i think milius would have liked and then of course eastwood and the other the remaining robber have this kind of cat and mouse game of shooting around the aisles and stuff like that uh that's really quite good i think i like this scene a lot just because of the emotional content of the early smith uh, scene and then just kind of the the non glamorous shootout that happened. I, th I thought it all felt really emotionally real and physically real. I agree. Well, and in fact, what you just pointed out. I mean, you mentioned Milius, but Milius was not involved at this point. So Ted Post has to be given credit, you know, for. Yep. I mean, I don't know whose idea it was. Maybe it was Eastwood's, but yeah. Um, but it, it this is all very well done. It's very well directed. I, I agree. I, I like this scene. The other thing I like about it is early uh, Felton Smith, uh, sorry, Felton Perry, the actor, does a great job of taking early through the emotional highs and lows of survival. Yeah, like absolutely. Absolutely. Um, he walks up after it's all over and he kind of gives this little nervous laugh, like, whew, he got through that shit. Yeah. And then you kind of see the, so that's him at the high and then you can just kind of see all of the adrenaline leave him. Yep. It kind of has an emotional crash. And at that point, uh, we, we we catch back up with Early and, and Eastwood, I'm sorry, Early and, and Callahan back at the station and uh, Eastwood says, you know, you handled yourself really well back there, Early. And Early says, you play it really close. You, you push that all the way up to the edge. Uh, but I think that in that moment, Eastwood found Early to be exactly the guy who he wanted at his side. Early's a good cop. Early's excellent, actually. Well, we kind of learned in the first film that um, Callahan's kind of hard in his 
partners, but he, he cares about them. Yeah. And uh, he's always looking for opportunities to respect them. Yes, yes. And early, early earns all of that respect. And they bump it on their way in as they're kind of becoming buddies. Yeah. They run into the, the motorcycle patrolman. And we learn a little bit about Eastwood and we learn a little bit about early and early knows these guys and he likes them. They're kind of friendly and they give him, Hey, what's up? What are you guys doing? And, you know, they kind of exchange uh, things. Eastwood is curious about these guys. Cause he likes them too. He doesn't know them like early does early explains well they came up at in the Academy after me. And this film is very much a prisoner of its time, uh, but not necessarily negatively. So it's not, unproblematic to use the kind of catch cliche phrase but early says oh yeah man and audience i'm going to use i'm going to quote the movie don't hate at us uh, i'm quoting the film but early says yeah those guys are like thick as thieves basically you know they they're always together i mean we kind of thought they were queer for each other now early says that and he's not necessarily being critical he's just kind of stating a fact <laughs> and eastwood eastwood's callahan is not a homophobe i don't think he's a san franciscan and he accepts certain things and and he says one of the one of the I, I think it's an interesting line and I think it, it illustrates that Eastwood isn't intolerant uh, I'm not, not Eastwood but Callahan isn't intolerant but he's not forward thinking but he was like you know what early if the, the rest of the department could shoot like those guys I wouldn't care if the whole damn department was queer and 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 I don't think that East I don't think Eastwood's Callahan cares one way or the other but there's just something he said that he thought would be funny to early and he and early are having this conversation and there actually is an old school police officer coming out of the of the department who overhears this and he seems this is he seems scandalized by everything that these two have just said and I just kind of like that because I, I like that it gives Harry a moment to show that he's really not what people think he is which was Eastwood's point yeah because Eastwood liked the idea of the vigilante cops because he wanted to sh because he felt that Harry Callahan everyone had this view of him and Eastwood didn't agree with that and he wanted to show this other side of Harry yes. just talking about I, Eastwood's Callahan is a Schwarzenegger Republican yeah I think that that's fair to say and which is to say probably mostly socially liberal in fact we're going to see some scenes later on that indicate that that Eastwood Eastwood's Callahan is actually fairly if not socially liberal socially libertarian mm -hmm. you know if what you do makes you happy and it doesn't violate the law I don't give a shit it doesn't violate the moral law not violating people's you know what I mean? I think that yeah. that's where Callahan's basically at morally. But I just like this old ass cop was like looking at these two. You're okay with what? And then he just kind of shakes his head and walks off the old cop. After that scene, after the stakeout shootout, we get the big reveal of the movie, who the bad guys are. We've already kind of pieced it together because Post isn't really playing close to the vest. But there's another stakeout team monitoring another major criminal in the area. Well, hold on. Uh, Wait, the, the, pimp, the, the pimp dies first. Does the pimp die before the other criminal in the high rise yes okay so that's right that's right so after that we we, we get this scene with uh, a really engaging actress i i I, I, I totally agree i think she's great I can't remember the actress's name, but she plays quote unquote prostitute in the film. She is such a wonderful character. She's sort of a high-end call girl, a high-end sex worker. We get the sense in this scene as in, in, in the aggregate that, that she's somebody who's broken away from her pimp and she's an independent operator. Yes. Right? yes. And she's having a kind of a playful banner with this pervy cabbie, right? <laughs> 
And she's so engaging. She's really wonderful as you get the sense that you know who this, this sex worker is, right? Yeah, yeah. But when the cabbie stops near her place where he wants her to stop, her former pimp catches up with her. This actor, Albert Popwell, is in every single Dirty Harry film. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he plays the guy that Harry delivers the big line, you know, is a 44 Magnum. I yeah, yeah. Uh, I got to know he's that guy from yeah. Dirty Harry. Later on, he's actually going to play one of Dirty Harry's partners in the in the series. Shot, folks, I actually don't remember seeing this movie before recently. Before, before I thought I had watched this film, but I don't think I had. I immediately liked the sex worker, and I was so shocked and horrified by what uh, Albert Popwell's pimp does to her. Steals all of her money. She's made a lot of money at looks like an opera house. She's she's a very successful high end call girl. But he takes all of her money and he kills her with Drano and. Side note, I discovered this on IMDb Trivia. An actual murderer cites this film as inspiration for killing somebody in exactly this way. More more than a couple. This was a very this was a very controversial scene. And it's one of the scenes that Milius pointed out that he did not write. Okay. And- and that he felt was kind of layered into the movie to kind of make it a little bit more exciting, which he was against. Now, I don't I don't know if I agree with Milius here. It's such an effective scene. I have trouble agreeing with Milius here. He's a horrifying character, really wonderful, nice lady. Made me so mad. I just, I disliked this guy immediately. I, I, Albert Popwell is a great character actor, I have to say. So, and I want to, I, I want to actually kind of credit the cabbie's character. The cabbie runs off and calls the police, I think. It's indicated that he does something that definitely runs off <laughs> he runs off i mean like a good man knows their limitations maybe is what harry would say but right. he doesn't he doesn't stick around and he doesn't it doesn't seem like he just did nothing it does sound like he called the cops because the cops do know later on what he did yeah what 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 pimp did that's the that's the credit the 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 cast credit pimp is who albert albert popwell is albert popwell drives a sweet ass ride though i have to say it is the the textbook definition of pimped out caddy i think it's purple which i love it i don't like the fur lined bit uh, as we'll see it's going to leave stains uh he's driving across the golden gate bridge i think is the bridge is that the bridge uh it's the golden gate bridge he's going north because he's about to go into um you know that area just north of san francisco which came up in the previous film marin county so audience, i do audience i do not know because i am not the san francisco aficionado that my co-host is but he's going to fill us in it's a great city so uh the golden gate bridge is the bridge that connects san francisco with the area north because san francisco is almost like on a little kind of mini peninsula okay and so the golden gate bridge connects it to the county to the north and just like in the first film in fact the area where uh the the pimp who's not named in the film uh albert popple's character he's being followed across the bridge so he takes an exit seemingly very early after the bridge and he ends up getting pulled over thinks he's going to be able to get out of it show it show money bribe the uh, officer and of course as, as we the viewer at this point in the movie know that that's not going to happen uh the officer shoots him and then drives off so but it's that same area where the uh, the first film ended, a kind of area north of the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's all shot on location. I, I, I will take this moment to say the location shooting in this movie, not 
as um, noticeable as in the first movie. There are a couple moments, there are a couple moments, but uh, for the most part, I don't think this movie uses San Francisco as well as the first film does. I think that's a fair knock. This is the most realistic murder, by the way, that the patrolmen, killers, vigilantes will commit in the film. Because there are a couple murders in the film where I'm like, why is nobody noticing that? Yeah, I noticed that too. In fact, all the murders except for this one, it's like, you know, how, how like, even if nobody saw you shoot them, they would have noticed the car. They would have noticed that you pulled them over. Yes. They, they would have noticed something and it would have come back and there would have been an investigation. Okay, there was a cop. Yeah. Who, we're going to have to do, like, I, I noticed that too. Yes, yes. The, the, this is a, this is an area of the film which is strange that they didn't try and account for this. It's a it's an over two hour movie. This is a, a, an area of the film that deserves some criticism, and it's got to be post and maybe Eastwood a little bit too because he's a producer. Mount Mount Paso Productions is a producer of record. This is something that the film should have taken a little more care. The 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 attack at the even at the attack in the suburbs is not somebody would have noticed a patrolman speeding away from the murders, right? Yeah. And yeah. this is something that they could have taken. A little more care with it's a popcorn film so it's almost forgivable but it's too noticeable to be completely forgivable yeah i i i think that's fair because that that was something that was very much on my mind even though it's stylistically shot because there's um there's one scene i actually i can't remember which murder it is where uh it's very clear that the camera is attached to the to the motorcycle yeah and then he stops behind the car and then there's kind of this tilt as the motorcycle is kind of put on its kickstand. Yes, yes. Yeah, and um, and I thought, okay, that's stylistic, but at the same time, a little obvious that the camera's on the motorcycle because of the tilt. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, there's, there's a couple of other things that happen in the film that on the second viewing, I was like, this is a fucking slasher film. Uh, those scenes, yes. And but 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 it also follows the rules laid out by the great Wes Craven in Scream 2. The deaths are more gratuitous, right? Uh, uh, the sequel rules, yes. Yeah. The body count is higher. And and in this case, it's not Harry being the 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 killer. But I mean, this is almost maniac cop shit here, as 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 obvious as some of the killings are, you know what I mean? Audience Maniac Cop is a C-grade movie masquerading as a B-grade movie, but worth your time if you're into those kinds of films. But but this is a this is an area where the film can be cr criticized. Uh, but this murder of the pimp is, is the most sensible murder in the movie as a, if it were going to be in a procedural film. Because it's this murder that put Harry and the medical examiner on the idea that it's somebody either who is a cop or pretending to be a cop yeah. and this is kind of so so i'm criticizing the moment the movie for that but i do like the way the medical examiner and eastwood sort of start thinking along those lines well some of the procedural stuff for for 1973 mm -hmm. where you have the bullets with the strings yeah yeah you know that's that's about as good as it got back then absolutely we we get some ballistic stuff where they're trying they, they talk about how hollow points expand and how they only uh, they only were able to recover one because it didn't quite expand, and so they're having some trouble identifying the the ballistics. Oh, it's very interesting because I think it's at this point that Briggs realizes that Harry might be on the trail. Absolutely, because this is where Briggs starts trying to steer Harry away. I didn't notice this the first time I saw it. Yeah, yeah, which that's awesome. That's it, awesome, actually. That that. Um, 
you have to watch it a couple times to see that there's this concern that, you know, Harry's on the right trail. Maybe we need to put him on a different trail. Well, it's interesting because we have to credit credit Hal Holbrook here because I don't, audience, I'm going to go ahead and kind of preface this. Hal Holbrook is the big bad. And he is so good in this movie. Not like most people think Hal Holbrook is only brilliant in Creepshow, but that's not true. Hal Holbrook is brilliant in everything, but Hal Holbrook is so good at being the bureaucratic cop that you think he really believes what he's saying to Harry. Harry, you're you're chasing a rabbit trail here. The answer's not there. The answer's this guy that I'm pointing you to. This is the guy that's killing people, which is another mobster. So how uh, Holbrook's Briggs is trying to distract Harry from the real trail. The medical examiner has identified that what they're dealing with is uh, people who use 357 Magnums. Now, a lot of cops at this time were using 357 Magnums as their duty load. They were practicing with 38 Special or 38 Special Plus P, but what they were carrying in their duty weapon was uh, 357 Magnum. So immediately Harry's already starting to, both Harry and the medical examiner think it's a cop or somebody pretending to be a cop. Early is kind of new to this because he's just a guy on stakeout, uh, which I guess was its own thing in the 70s in San Francisco. And Early's picking up what they're laying down. Oh, that's, you know, oh, that's interesting. So it's not the pimp murder that, that causes Briggs to pull Harry in. It's the next set of murders that Briggs can't seem to cover up anymore. And that is, there's another stakeout team covering a guy who looks like Ned Beatty's thin brother, who's in a high rise. They're watching him. I can't remember what crimes he commits or what he does, but he's a, he's one of our more decadent villains. He's hanging out with a young uh, bisexual man and bisexual woman, I'm assuming. And they like really expensive cocaine. And he keeps them around, this, this mobster, because I'm guessing he likes to have sex with both of them and i we don't know much about this guy we know that he's well connected and that the cops are watching him mitchum that character from the first film fatso is is on stakeout with the guy and they're watching the building with this guy this is more of that decadent 70s filmmaking by the way because this old mobsters lovers are naked completely throughout every scene that they're in you know also, audience, in the scene, they're on a waterbed, which is something that's unheard of today because there was always a stupid concept, but it was a concept that was just perfect for 1970s, 1980s. Did you have a waterbed, Jason, ever? Oh, never. My parents got me a waterbed for some reason when I, my freshman year of high school. I never really liked it. It was the weirdest thing ever. I don't know why people had them, but for some reason, my parents got me a waterbed uh, in 1987, 88, somewhere, and I never liked it. I don't know why I, they got it for me. Well, so, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about this scene is that first couple of times I watched it, so they're on the stakeout and there's a patrolman that goes kind of through the area and he gets kind of hit by a car. Now, is that McCoy or is that Davis? It's McCoy. Yeah. Well, the first couple of times I watched it, I thought that, that it was Davis or just one of the killers. And I thought, that's kind of odd that they would be that incompetent. But this last time I you said, know, oh, no, that's McCoy. And he's not really with it at this point. And yeah, you know, it's it, it's very like him at this point to be in that kind of situation. Yeah. And and, and, and he was observed. Yes, he was observed by Mitchum and, and the he other. Was observed, which, which I thought, ooh. So the first couple times I watched it, I was like, well, that's one of the killers. And he got, he was observed. That's yeah. not good because, you know, he'll be a suspect. So, but, you know, they said, oh, well, that's McCoy. Well, he's all right. Uh, but. Because McCoy, McCoy gets hit by. 
car. McCoy gets up. He's all right. McCoy is probably drunk. McCoy isn't fit for duty, by the way, of it. Uh, but but he gets up. The officers on stakeout see that, but they say he's all right, and he goes about his business. And now we get to the scene that probably drove John Milius, the gun nut. Uh, I, I say gun nut, but I don't mean that. I don't mean it in that way. But gun aficionado, gun enthusiast, firearms enthusiast. The next scene probably drove him batshit crazy because we see our killer patrolman infiltrate the building, and the killer patrolman attack to his cult python, a silencer. And a silencer cannot work on a revolver at all because sound is coming out of a couple different places. Uh, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but we're going to have to... Do... It, this scene drove me shit, batshit crazy, too. I'm right there with John Milius's ghost. You're, you're Team Milius. I'm this Team is, Milius here. This is why he hated Ted Post. This is why he hated Ted Post. I don't hate Ted Post. you got to have a gimmick. This is a Bond gimmick, so I, I, I forgive it a little bit. This is a popcorn film, so I forgive it, but simply attaching something to the barrel of a revolver won't work because there's a a lot of sound that explodes out of the cylinder gap. Uh, so uh, a revolver isn't as efficient as a semi-automatic pistol like a, a 45 caliber, a 1911 45, or any of the modern semi-automatics, a Glock, anything that people carry. Everything's contained in the barrel and it all shoots out one direction. The sound, everything shoots out one direction in a semi-automatic pistol. With the revolver cylinder, there is a small gap between the cylinder and what's called the forcing cone. And and, uh, and then there's the cylinder itself. A lot of this, unless you put like the whole revolver in a fucking bubble, uh, you're going to get an explosive sound, especially out of a 357 Magnum. And so, but between the forcing cone and the cylinder gap, there's going to be like this ex huge explosion of sound. And that's just not contained. Now there is a revolver. I learned this today. A friend, I was out of, actually, I was Jason. I was actually out at the range today with a friend of mine. And there was a revolver uh, designed by... Mosin, a Russian guy named Mosin, who was one of the developers of the Russian rifle, the Mosin Nagat. He developed a rifle, a revolver that when you pulled the trigger would push the cylinder right up against the forcing cone so there was no gap. And maybe you could get a cylinder to work. I'm sorry, a silencer to work with that kind of revolver, but nobody carries those. So John Milius must have been pulling out his, whatever was left of his receding hair when he saw this scene because it just can't work. Anyway, audience, Take that for what you will. Other than that impossibility, I actually think this is kind of a fun action scene. Uh, it's, it is David Souls Davis who completes this assassination. He kills a bodyguard. Oh, so, so let me back up a little bit because one of the things I noticed on the second and third viewing and the fourth viewing of this film, Davis seems to move backward in time. <laughs> as he walks up these stairs because it starts out as like what looks like a modern building. And then as he walks up the stairs, it almost looks like he's walking up the stairwell of a medieval castle. The, the masonry has gotten so bad as he goes up. I don't know what that was. I'm sure that it's actually something that was real, but I just like, who is maintaining this building in San Francisco is what I wanted to know because the, 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 the walls seem to degrade as he goes up before he attacks the bad guy. Yeah. By the time he reaches their floor, there's the, uh, um, the, the, there's a puddle there. 
Yeah. And, and you know what? I'm giving the scene a little bit of shit, but like as he crosses through the puddle and he starts to walk up the steps and he leaves these footprints, it's a really elegant shot. Yeah, I, I think it's well edited. Yeah. I, I actually really like a lot of this stuff. Oh, I mean, I, I, I'm giving it a hard time. And I like it. But and when David Soul kicks down the door, we definitely see that it's him. David Soul is a handsome man, by the way. He's a very handsome baddie. The actors all in this scene, the criminals, I, I want to say the, the criminal and his associates valiantly portray people in absolute terror for their lives. Yeah. The criminal, the his his paramours who are killed not for any good reason, even if you believe the bullshit that Briggs is going to lay down later on. These people are killed. They don't the the criminal may, let's let's say we agree with Briggs and his death squad killing these these sex workers maybe that's what they are I don't know strikes me as unjustifiable even by their quote unquote code uh, so but anyway I, I I like this scene the mobsters begging for his life the 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 bisexual dudes begging for his life and the the woman is begging for her life and she goes out harder than any of them it seemed because she gets shot and then in 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 a kind of really deep Decent bit of effect shooting. This really good dummy, body dummy, falls out the window and falls to her death. Right, um, which is it's shot and edited in such a way that it's almost ridiculous, but it, it actually isn't. It, it's it's effective. It, you're absolutely right. That it is an excellent point. It could have become comedy. Yeah, but it doesn't. It doesn't cross that line. It, it's all shocking. Yeah. And so that happens. The cops are the cops on stakeout <laughs> fucking drop the ball. Oh shit. <laughs> Uh, and they go they go check it out and in this moment McCoy happens to be on patrol maybe he's heard some commotion he's entering the parking garage that is attached to this high rise the San Francisco high rise and he sees another patrolman and McCoy drunk as he is incompetent as he is in this moment in his career he's like oh hey and before he can do anything he shot once in the chest and then shot in the head yeah I you know, I I said earlier that I really felt that the the portrayal of McCoy's character is really poor. Yeah. Um, it's poor because it it doesn't really land what the film is trying to do. I think every time that I've seen this movie, and I mean every time. Mm-hmm not until after I saw this scene for maybe the fourth time that I actually realized that McCoy was not in on any of us. Yeah. Because every time that I've watched it, I thought that McCoy's smile was, oh, hey, buddy, you know, we're, we're in on this together. Yeah. And and then they shoot him, and I'm, and I'm thinking, well, why did they shoot him? Isn't he part of it? I, I now realize that he was not. Yeah. I don't think the film communicates that very well. I think that that's fair. I I never thought he was in on it. I think you make a good point when he's like, "Hey, buddy," he has that expression, and yeah, yeah, he smile. He smiles like, "Oh, it's you," or you know, like. I think that's accurate because he knows Davis. He absolutely yeah. knows Davis. And then Davis, but Davis is exposed at this moment. This is probably the sloppiest work Davis does in the movie as one of the bad guys. Uh, Davis played by David Soul, uh, but he has to kill McCoy 
because now he's been seen at the scene. Right. And there's no reason for him to be there, right? And he barely gets away with being there. Even even the stakeout cops are like, oh, it's weird that, that Davis was there, but he was Johnny on the spot, got lucky, right? So just before that, though, I'm going to cut back to our Callahan. Callahan is living a kind of lonely bachelor's life, chilling, yeah. and he meets so far, he, he gets back to his apartment after some after some scene. I don't remember. Uh, he's in this building checking his mail and he meets Jason. He meets my favorite character in the series so far. Sonny. I adore Sonny. Sonny is played by Adele Yoshioka and she's just a neighbor downstairs and she's like, oh, hey, hi, you're that cop from upstairs. And he's like, yeah. She is a progressive San Francisco woman of 1973. She is adorable. And I immediately had a, a cinema crush on Sonny. And she says, can I ask you a question, Harry? And Harry's like, ah. Sure. Harry is intrigued by her from the get-go. She's engaging. She's friendly. And she's like, how does one sleep? How does one get around to sleeping with you? And he's like, what I love about this scene is like, she, oh, she's obviously progressive and liberated and yada, yada, yada. She's everything that Midwestern America probably is afraid of in this moment. But but Harry's kind of like, I like it that he's sort of like shocked by her. But then he's like, ah. He kind of has a laughy moment where he kind of like laughs to himself. I guess you could knock on my door. Yeah. And and he goes upstairs and I, I almost get the sense that he doesn't really think anything is going to come of Sonny. And he goes up to his apartment. He's getting himself squared away. He looks at the old picture of he and his wife, right? Yep. And I don't think Harry expected her to come and knock. I think he, he, he was intrigued by the idea. He was intrigued by her. He's eating a burger probably from his buddy at the, at the, at the, at the airport. Yeah. Uh, and he's drinking a beer, that, that Eastwood motif. And of course, Sonny knocks. And you know, one of the things I liked about this, in part because of some of the identif- uh, some of the things that Anya said in our previous podcast, Harry's not happy. Yeah. And when she knocks at his door, he's, and when she uh, approaches him, it seems like a genuine happiness. Like he, he might be on the way to happiness. So, so before anybody, before we go on any further, in my mind, I immediately concocted this scenario where Harry is married to Sonny now. That's what happened to him. He and Sonny got married. That's what I think happened. Now, I know that doesn't happen because sudden impact happens, but but I I like the idea that that let's put in a, in a, in an alternate universe in a Doctor Strange mediated travel to a, a different universe. Sonny and Harry got together. I, I think they got married. I think that they were. I think they're a great couple. Jason, what did you think of Sonny and Harry? I've I've pontificated enough. I, I have to start with this. John Milius does not agree with you. <laughs> John Milius hated the fact that they added that character. It was not a, Sonny was not in his script. He he wrote uh, Harry Callahan as this this solo bachelor character mm-hmm. who's totally he's lonely, but he's totally dedicated to the job. And he hated, that's one of the things he had against Ted Post. He hated that they put that. It, I mean, Eastwood. It was his idea. Well, I mean, popcorn film. This is a Bond moment. Yeah, and and I. And because Sunny is not depicted as a bimbo or a dummy, but she has a she's a woman of some agency and she's doing something that she wants to do. We shouldn't say that Bond girls don't do this necessarily, but I like Sunny just be I adore Sunny because of her assertiveness and and I adore Harry's affection for her because of her assertiveness. But it is a bond moment, you know, because there's no there's absolutely no emotional depth to this relationship. But sadly for Harry, he's having a nice 
nice moment and Briggs calls him. And one of the things I like about this moment, because this is actually after the, the high rise murder, I think, Harry, are you busy? Well, yeah, I am. I'm entertaining a female friend. And, and Harry, and this, Harry's kind of pushing back. He doesn't want to go in. Right. Right. And, and Briggs says, put your pants back on Harry in the way only Hal Holbrook can. And Harry has to take his leave of Sonny. I was worried that was the last we were going to see of Sonny because I like, I like them together, but Harry goes in and, uh, Harry before that this is a great clever moment of Ted Post editing Uh, Harry says well you put me on stakeout I'm not on homicide and then the next scene is not anymore Harry uh, which is is almost like a a continuation of a conversation they were having in a different scene it's kind of a clever bit of editing by Ted Post and his editor and then they're they're at the morgue and they have all these people that the that the cops have killed anything you want to add here no I I I, I agree with you that's um, kind of a, a a very kind of famous part of the editing of the Dirty Harry films. This film was edited by uh, Ferris Webster. Okay, was the editor a very a very accomplished uh, editor at that um, at that time? This is almost an Edgar Wright. Uh, that's well said. He also edited the Outlaw Josie Wales, which we have, we have reviewed. reviewed. He was a regular editor of Eastwood Films. He did High Plains Drifter, Firefox, Honky Tonk Man, Bronco Billy. You know, so he he worked with Eastwood a lot. So okay. Yeah. But yeah, this is this is a this is the only almost this is almost a comedy beat. But Harry's back on homicide, and Harry's pushing his theory of the cop a little bit. He's starting to. He's trying to get Briggs on board with that. But Briggs is convinced that there's this other mobster that's involved, right? Yeah, uh, Palancio. Palancio. But Harry's like Palancio is likely to be the next victim, <laughs> which we the viewer are like, yep. It's at this point where Harry says to now Harry sort of floated the idea I think a little bit to Briggs, but then when Harry gets called in, he does give up McCoy. He says, "I think it's McCoy." Yeah. At some point, he says, "I think it's McCoy." McCoy's, you know, he he's he shouldn't be carrying anymore. He shouldn't be a badge. He shouldn't carry a badge anymore. It's at that point Briggs says, "Oh yeah, well McCoy's dead," and and Harry's shocked by this, and Harry realizes that he sort of got it wrong. Yeah. And the only other people he knows that that carry three fifty seven mag and that operate as proficiently as they do are these patrolmen who hang out as a group. Yeah. And that leads us to the combat championship. And I'm going to say that this is one of the cleverer things that the film does. A, it's shot really well. So audience, the, there's this police combat shooting championship where cops have to run through their their uh this course of like pop-up targets sometimes it'll be an innocent person sometimes it'll be a bad guy and the police officers have to who are doing this course have to shoot the right targets and not hit the bad ones harry's won this competition probably since the stone age and harry has a good run but he gets he gets beaten on the basic competition by davis played by david soul from starsky and hutch salem's lot yada 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 and he gets to declare a shoot off basically some kind of like tiebreaker round right and this is really well shot except for obviously they're shooting blanks i think as a director i might have tried to have them shoot the course for real you know because there's a couple moments where david's soul is shooting and it looks like he's dry humping the the air because he's trying to he's trying to imitate recoil and for some reason, he's involving his entire body in, especially 
his hips. He's like Elvis Presley, scandalizing 1950s America. And so he runs the course, does a great job. And then Harry runs the course. I, that's a minor complaint about it. Like if you if you if you're not if you don't if you don't shoot if you don't go to the range if you don't under if you don't do any of this stuff it's not probably going to bother people. Uh, you're not going to notice David Soul's performance. David Soul does a great job. But uh, again, there's that marriage between target activity and like it, it marries up really well with the 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 blanks being shot by the actors. It all it, this is such a good scene. Both both Eastwood's and Soul's, like I said, with the exception of of uh, Davis's affection for Air, his infatuation with Air, and so. Eastwood runs the course almost perfectly. He would have beat Davis's character, but for the fact that he catches a major penalty on the very last shot where he accidentally shoots a police silhouette, right? Which I almost, I'm almost conflicting. Okay. Whether or not he did that on purpose. I think that's the best bit of mystery that Ted Post gives us. Did he do it on purpose? Because, because at this point, he, he suspects Davis and his crew. And, and Harry definitely uses this this whole sequence as a tool to continue his investigation. Yes. But the other aspect is the fact that he loses it because he shoots the cardboard cutout of a cop, which actually plays into what we discover later is Briggs's narrative that Callahan is the one that's behind all of this. Yeah. Well, the narrative that Briggs is going to try and sell. Davis and his friends are very, they're kind of respectful of Harry, but they're also kind of happy that they're their, their guy won the, the thing and Harry is very magnanimous in this you know he's oh it happens you know sometimes you, you, you get beat which is I, I like that Harry lost the competition yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that that's a nice touch yeah oh yeah and then Harry says hey can I take a can I take a run with your with your gun and Davis is more than happy to oblige this person who he admires a lot Harry takes a few shots six in fact uh with with davis's revolver and on the last one he puts the he puts around through a wood frame of a door he misses again which this is definitely on purpose this is definitely on purpose harry says oh i missed one and and he gets to recapitulate a little bit of a scene in the range earlier and davis says well you get used to it you'll get used to it and smash cut almost to harry back at that range at night digging that bullet out of the door frame and he compares it with the shots from the other rounds uh, from the other from the other from the murders and at that point we know that he's figured it out yeah so this is kind of batman stuff that we you know we saw in the the recent uh the batman movie yes yes and we get a nice little bit from early early comes up to harry and is like hey harry uh my wife is cooking x y and z she's a good cook why don't you come over this is another little lethal weapon thing that will pop up when murtaugh invites riggs to come over dinner I, I didn't realize how large the dirty harry films loom in the lethal weapon series well, well but there's a difference his wife's a good cook <laughs> there's a difference audience we will no doubt tackle the lethal weapon films and we will explain <laughs> that later on well, that was really that was good i i have to take my hat off to jason for doing that to me but 
Harry is shocked by what he's discovered, and he's almost holding out hope. I think that it's not true, but yeah. And and by the way, I think he wants he would be very glad to go with Early to have dinner and absolutely, absolutely. But he's and and this is something interesting too because he does explain himself to Early. He he doesn't explain himself in other instances where people give him an opportunity to respond. But what he says to Early is, "I ah, better not. I just saw something that made me lose my appetite." Yeah, which because uh, early and his wife, you know, they're they were watching him petition and they were rooting for him. Yes. And, um, they're, and they're a fashionable young couple. You know, I mean, you know, just kind of waiting to be his friend. And, you know, and unfortunately, it's not going to happen. But we'll... it's, it's, it's not. Harry reveals some of what he's seen to. Well, this is something that I didn't notice the first time I saw it. Harry is going to reveal to Briggs what he's discovered. But when he goes to look at the ballistics in the lab, some of the evidence is missing and Briggs says oh it's been that evidence has been sent off to the FBI which it probably has right and Harry sort of suspects he's I think he's starting to suspect Briggs at this point yeah well Briggs asked him for the slug yeah like yeah I'm gonna hang on to it and, and yeah Harry says what do you think of this do these match and and Briggs says well it's pretty close but you know without the other slugs we can't really be sure right now and he offered he, he Briggs holds out his hand for the slug and he's like why don't you give me that and I'll hold on to it and, and Harry he says, you know, it's probably just nothing. And he holds on to it. And then they go off to the Palencio bust, I believe. Which, which uh, Harry insists on taking two of the patrolmen. Yes. Yes. Sweet and Davis. Yep. And this is uh, this is not my favorite action sequence, but it, start, it started me thinking, I like it. It's fine. This next beat where they go bust Palencio. You're better than you then because, I mean, okay, you like it, but I, I thought it was really good. Oh, it's great. I mean, it's fine, but it's not, this is not my favorite action beat in the film. Like I said, I think my favorite action beat in the film is that grocery store stakeout. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, so, so, but I'm just saying, uh, it's very well done. Somebody calls Palencio and says the cops are on the way. We don't know who. And so they start preparing and Sweet is killed in this, in this shot. But this is one of the things that started making me think about Wes Craven's sequel rules mm-hmm. because the bad guy dies really horribly. The bad guy in this, the, the mobster dies really in a grisly way. He's running from Harry at, towards the end. Now, Harry doesn't think this is the guy that's killing all the criminals, right? But he's going to try and serve the warrant. And there's a huge shootout. It's really pretty clever and a lot of fun stuff happens, but the mobster tries to get away and he almost does, but he turns the corner and for some reason there is a crane arm that is quite low and he he sees a moment before it happens that he's about to catch a grisly end. Yeah, I, I, I think we're, we're to assume he gets decapitated or something like that. Yes, yes, it's 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 it's, it's kind of great. It's one of those moments as a film watcher, you're like, yeah, and it's it's wonderful to have those moments. And I'm not, I, I for some reason, I'm not remembering what happened after this. Harry uh, Sweet gets killed. Does Harry reveals to? Oh no no no! Doesn't Harry tell Briggs what he? thinks because at some point at some point the cops that are still alive offer harry an in they think harry is their kind of people um yes 
but that's but that's after this. Yeah, it's after this. Yeah, it's after this. He so after this, uh, Callahan gets suspended because of because of Sweet's death, and then he and then he goes back home, and the uh, and the final three are waiting for him, and they're you know they got their you know they all have their sunglasses on. Yeah. And they kind of reveal to him because they know what's that he knows what's going on. Yeah. And they kind of give him a chance to join them. Yeah. And, you know, and, and he, he refuses and then they, they start their motorcycles and they all parade out. And that's when the, uh, the danger for Harry and anybody who's his friend. Yes. Starts- yes. And so absolutely. He warns. Yeah. This is what's going on. Be on your guard. And because they're going to come after us, they're going to assume I told you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you're in danger and early's guard isn't up as much as it should be we'll find out but but there's this great moment where this, the the relationship between sunny and callahan is ongoing and she's like i'm gonna go to the at some point she says i'm gonna go to the grocery store and i'm gonna get some stuff out I'll, I'll pick your mail up when i come back in and i for some reason harry gets the sense that there's something that that's a bad idea he's pretty sure that somebody's put a bomb in his mailbox do you remember why he think he gets that sense um he um he ends up checking the mail box uh just on instinct he kind of looks down sees that there's something wrong and then he goes upstairs to try and call early yeah to try to call early and which he doesn't answer here's the phone yeah but decides to get his mail first well it's yeah absolutely absolutely and early buys it and as that's going on on harry's end he hears people talking to sunny oh hey and he realizes she's in danger and he runs downstairs knocks her over shocks her a little bit and no he- she, she She's going to open his uh, mailbox. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. She's about to open his mailbox. That's why he knocks her over to save her life. And this is sort of a comedy beat and kind of staple Eastwood comedy. As he's trying to disarm the bomb, he's arguing with the guy from upstairs, right? Yeah. And, and it's it's quite funny, but it's popcorn movie funny. It's not noir movie serious, like maybe Emilius would have wanted. I think it's an effective scene. It's kind of funny. I like it. And, and he pulls out a bomb. He calls up Briggs and says, hey, somebody's got to get over and talk to early i just found a bomb in my mailbox hey there i'll come there myself yes and now we get so he takes the bomb from eastwood and they start driving and to wherever they're going to go and it's at this point where briggs reveals he's a villain yeah well you had a chance harry now now he's gonna he he reveals he's gonna pin everything on harry probably gonna kill harry as they're driving you had your chance to be a part of this but you know uh and this is where we see uh callahan's line briggs says something about how the system's broken you should know better to get in it and join us and harry's like yeah it's a shitty system i'm not exactly thrilled with it but like you can't until somebody comes up with a better idea that is basically approved of democratically i'm gonna stick with it yeah and that's very much a reasonable position you can't have an unelected death squad probably Um, and then uh, Harry gets the better of Briggs. How does he get the better of Briggs? I can't remember. I, was a... Well, he ends up kind of struggling with him and getting the gun thrown out of the... Uh... Yes. B- b- because Briggs basically takes his gun, gets all of the ammo that he has on him. And he's yeah. like, 
I know you've got three and he has them throw them out the window. Then um, Harry is able to kind of distract him, throw his gun out of the car and then crash the car, which seemingly kills Briggs. Yeah. Yeah. And then Harry, but, but, but Harry's also being pursued by the remaining death squad cops. Uh, well, there's a little car chase actually that I remember quite liking um, because there are some shocking deaths of the police death squad here. And this sort of goes back to Wes Craven's sequel rules. The deaths are more graphic. Harry dispatches two of these officers in really grisly ways. And sometimes they're quite unexpected. I don't know. I think it might be Astrochan, but Harry turns the corner in his giant hoopty and the motorcycle cop has no time to turn, no time to do anything and just gets obliterated by this fucking giant car. And I remember thinking, holy shit. Uh, I was so shocked by that. And, and then Harry sort of engages with the last two officers in a game of cat and mouse on a on an old boat. And the second officer he kills, I was actually kind of shocked by. Jason, do you want to describe what he does to the guy? Um, which one is this? It's the it's it's not Davis. Davis dies a pretty nondescript, boring death. But the guy inside the first one. So the first one is the car crash. He slams into him, yeah. Yeah. The second one is like the bazillion karate chops to the throat. Right, right. And and I remember thinking that's fucking brutal. <laughs> and and audience for a while, Clint Eastwood, I think this was a technique he he picked up from his Sergio Leone days, but like the man with no name of the Sergio Leone action films would often throw karate chops. Do you remember that? He would like Yeah, yeah totally. And he brought he 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 brought those out from underneath the mothballs and he just destroys Astrachan, I think's throat with karate chop after karate karate chop and i mean i think it would get the job done but it's 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 brutally inelegant and i just i was really shocked that that harry did that yeah. and, then, and then he has a little motorcycle chase with davis which this scene was one of the big ones well, well john Milius hated this third act okay he felt this final big action ending was all stupid it was over the top it was over the top it was not what he wanted and and he thought that it ruined the movie Clint Eastwood and Ted Post argued a lot about the shot selection in this. Okay. Because Ted Post wanted to do a lot of kind of long shots. And Eastwood, it's not that he didn't that he didn't want long shots, but he was not interested in doing a lot of reshoots or retakes. You know, he just it was very simple. He wanted it done very simple. Uh he felt like he knew what his audience wanted and he won out. Uh, but this is all very well shot. I think that 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 this final scene is looks very good i think i think it's i think it's fine i mean the only thing i i sort of think is a, a sort of given given how awesome and over the top the deaths have been i i sort of thought david souls davis goes out a little easily you know he just by, goes, by yeah. having an accident and then drowning yeah i thought well you know i mean since we've just gone full popcorn movie i would have liked to have seen him take uh you know catch a a worse death in this escalating chain of mayhem that that harry's causing these, these I, I, I yeah i think it's fair it's not the end of the world but then but briggs pops up at the end <laughs> is about to wrap it all up Briggs has found his gun and he's like I'm gonna burn you down Harry you know you're not gonna you're not gonna get out of this it's gonna be my word against yours okay stop okay Hal Holbrook is chewing on this scenery and 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 and, and he is 
He, he is controlling every moment of the last few minutes of this movie. He is. I, you're right. I, I like Callahan. Like, it's all great. I was not giving Hal Holbrook the credit he deserves. He's great in this moment. And this is another Bond moment. Yeah. As Harry. Harry has the bomb that was in his mailbox. And as 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 Hal Holbrook is Bond billing it up, monologuing, telling Harry the plan. Harry's resetting the timer and he tosses the bomb in the car that he presumes Briggs is going to get in when Briggs gets in it. And Briggs thinks he's going to use the system against Harry, but Harry is going to use Briggs's system against Briggs. And as Briggs is driving away, thinking he's won, the bomb blows up and Harry wins. Harry wins, but he's got a lot of paperwork to do, I suspect. Yes, but this is a 70s movie. Yes, yes. Don't go there. The credit. We don't. We roll credits, yeah. And that's the end of the fo- that's the end of the film audience. Well, you know, um, there's something that we didn't talk about. Uh, you quoted it a couple times. Man's got to know his limits. Yep. Um, and, and actually, I, I would say one of the one of the things about Magnum Force compared to Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry has some lines that we all quote, whether we've seen the movie or not. Magnum Force doesn't have that, but um, the closest that it comes to is the uh, man's got to know his limits yeah and i actually after seeing this movie four times Mm -hmm. i i actually think that that was intended to be a seminal kind of line and it was supposed to say something about harry's character because um i think it's in the morgue um and i can't remember what briggs says to harry but he says a man's got to know his limits Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me that what that line means for Harry. Now he says it to Briggs mm-hmm. when Briggs is a guy that never, you know, draws the gun from his holster, which I think we can assume that Briggs lied about. Yeah. But when Harry says it about himself, Harry is describing a conflict that he's already resolved. Mm-hmm. Harry sees these cops as murderers because he's already considered this. Because because Harry is willing to do anything to stop crime, but not but not murder people. That's a limit. He will not do that. Now, um, if there's a girl that's been kidnapped and he has to torture somebody to find out where she is, he'll do that. Yeah. If somebody shoots at him, he'll kill them. Yeah. But he will not put somebody in a position where they are helpless and murder them in cold blood. Yeah. And so that line, a man's got to know his limits, which Eastwood says maybe three or four times in the movie. Yeah. At least two. I know that. Uh, yeah. Well, well, I mean, he says it in reference to Briggs mm-hmm. a couple times, but he says it once. And I think it's in the morgue. And when he says it in the morgue, I actually thought he's talking about himself. Yeah. He he will not do that. That's the line. Harry will not just murder somebody because of what they uh, of what they have done or what they might do. And and it's con- and to this point in the series it's consistent. Yeah. When Harry kills somebody, it's either because they have they pulled a weapon on him or there's some information, you know, in the case of the um, the Zodiac or, or the not the Zodiac, but the Scorpio killer in the first film, there's this girl that's being tortured and starving or hasn't had any hydration and she could be she could she could be dead now, she could be dead tomorrow. I've got to find out where she is. 
is, I'm going to shoot this guy and find out where she is. Yeah. And so, you know, and at least this was Eastwood's idea. Point of this movie is a man's got to know his limits. Harry's limits is he doesn't go there. Yeah. He won't do what these guys do. In fact, he'll stop them. Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, he, he doesn't sing the praises of the system, but he does admit sort of like, uh, I can't remember who's, who's, who is, uh, who this is attributed to, but there's that, that, that line about democracy. Democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Yeah. 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 And that's sort of where Harry is with the criminal justice system. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's totally imperfect but we can't have people thinking that they know everything and killing everybody you know yeah and 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 harry harry will bend rules as much as he can and complain when somebody but but harry does it openly harry doesn't hide there's nothing that harry callahan does that's you know behind the scenes yeah yeah right out there for everyone to see that goes back to my earlier comment in the first podcast about how he's not really a guy with a lot of guile yeah. So he does demonstrate some good instincts by keeping some things close to his vest from Briggs. But but yeah, so I think that those are all valid observations. The Lalo Schifrin score, how does it work with this one? Um, not as well. Um, although I noticed, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, because I mean, it definitely has the kind of the 70s groove to it. But there was also this kind of kind of snare drum thing, almost mm-hmm. touristic, that I felt was intended to kind of, um, you know, these police officers officers who are you know um following the system yeah. and you know beyond the logical expectation and so i kind of felt like the kind of militaristic drums was kind of a nod to that so a very thoughtful score very much of the time i didn't like it as well yeah but it was very good i think it's it worked best in that opening scene Mm-hmm. on the red field with the 44 Magnum. I thought that's because it tied it to the first film, you know. Yeah. It is interesting that the first two movies in the C- series seem to have bad guys with military backgrounds. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suspect that might be also the case in the next film. I could be wrong, but I guess that brings us to our verdict. Jason, uh, how about you go first? Or do you want to sure. go second? No, I'll go first. Okay. And three, two, one. Perfect. So Magnum Force is a film. Uh, the first time I ever saw it, I, I really liked it. Then I watched it again for this podcast and I was a little underwhelmed by it. And I feel like I needed to watch it again. So I did. And I liked it as much the third time as I did the first time. And I feel like, and, and I, you know, then read some of the reviews of this movie. I, I would actually state that Magnum Force is an underrated sequel. Sequels are almost by definition inferior to the original film. But I would actually challenge anybody to watch this movie. And Max and I have talked about, you know, some things here or there that are a little questionable. I actually think that Ted Post, who I don't always like as a director, he's very much a TV director. I think he did a marvelous job in directing this movie. It, it's well edited. It's well acted. It's well written. It's well pa- it's well paced. I think that the, the action beats are in the right place. Places. It has a marvelous villain. I I actually think that Magnum Force is a very good movie. It's clearly inferior to the original Dirty Harry, but this is a very underrated film. And I say, and again, I say underrated. If 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 there were critics or people that said, well this movie's pretty good, then I wouldn't say that. But actually, this movie is, is I think, kind of unfairly derided. I, I, I've i read some pretty middling reviews of it, 
And I, I actually don't see a lot of problems with it. It is a sequel, but there are some really good sequels from the 70s and on that people have, you know, gave bad reviews that, that didn't deserve it. Mm-hmm. I think Magnum Force is one of those. I actually, I really like this movie. I will watch it again. And I apologize to John Milius, who I think might still be alive and is probably a listener to this podcast. But uh, Mr. Milius, you are wrong. The the final action beat is very good. The the, the you know the final showdown with the uh, patrolman uh, is is well done. And then we finally have the payoff with Hal Holbrook, which is almost like a Goldfinger kind of moment where where it looks like that he's going to get the, the last laugh. And and it, it, look, that's just all great. And it's not a great film, but it's a good film. It's a very good sequel. It's underrated, and I will watch it again. I would, if you like Dirty Harry movies, you should watch this movie more than once. I don't have much to add to that. So my verdict is this. The key to uh, really enjoying Magnum Force is to let go of your impression of Red Dawn. I'm not Red Dawn. Sorry. That's another John Milius movie. I was actually just looking up John Milius writing. Uh, But is the key to let go of the tone and execution of Dirty Harry and realize what you're watching is a popcorn movie sequel. This was a film that seems to be more directed at crafting a popular entertainment than necessarily a piece of high art. That's not that's not a bad thing, but this is uh, an effective sequel in that it kind of takes it allows us to return and visit with a character we like a lot. And and sometimes that's all a sequel needs to do. And I think that it, Magnum Force does that well. Yes, it's not Jaws two, which I think is a good sequel, but it's it's not Jaws three either. <laughs> and so uh, I I, I think. I think that it it works very well as a sequel, and when seen in that way, it's it's quite a good, it's quite a fun ride. Don't get hung up in the weeds when you watch this uh, about perfection, because that's not what this film is trying to do. It's trying to have a fun time with characters we like, and and that's that's my verdict. Jason, what are we doing next week? The Enforcer, which is the third film in the Dirty Harry yes. sequence. Uh, sequence. I hope it is not Jaws three of the Dirty Harry. Uh, I I the Enforcer is one of the, um, I don't know if it's one of the least watched films in the series, but it it might be. Oh, well, audience, we're going to give you, sorry, audience, we're going to give you the proper opinion of The Enforcer next week. And uh, that's all the news that's fit to print from Lord Movie Studios. Uh, Share us with all your friends on all the social medias, uh, on the Facebooks, on the Instagrams. If you subscribe through Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review. It helps people find the show. Uh, Share us on Twitter. I think you know the drill. Share us with all your friends. You can reach me at The Supper Test on Twitter. And that's all I got, guys. See you next week with The Enforcer. Bye-bye. Two, one, action. No, I'm with you. I, I prefer Chicago. Maybe you and I, because we're Midwest boys, are a little biased. Based, based on your beard, yeah. you're actually competing with Michael McDonald to join the Doobie Brothers on tour. You're caught up on Obi-Wan Kenobi. Most of the continuity shit people have brought up is BS. It seems to me like Obi-Wan would have done anything in the galaxy to save Anakin, but he has no time for Darth Vader. I had to supplement my gin and tonic uh, a bit. My second shot had to be vodka, so it's a gin vodka tonic. Yeah, I, I've had a vodka and tonic before, and I didn't care for it. But 
I'm at a point right now where it's just fine. You can't have an unelected death squad, probably. 